Welcome to episode 178 of the Three Amigos podcast, presented by BodyElbow.com. I'm your host, Ian Kidd, joined as always by the Leslie Smith of podcasting, Miss Steffi Haynes, and the Greg Hardy of the microphone, Mr. Mick Alexander. Now, before anyone gets the wrong idea, I should point out, Mick hasn't been accused of domestic abuse because he's only 12 years old, so he hasn't married yet. But there have been some pretty intense sibling rivalry fights with his sister. That's all I'm going to say about it. We've got a lot of stuff to cover this week. There's the Leslie Smith, the UFC lawsuit drama. There's the odd odd ending to one of the fights in the UFC Atlantic City. There's um, some drug testing stuff going on. There's some crazy tough tryouts. There's Nick Newell news. There's a lot we're going to cover. It's interesting stuff. But first, how are you guys? I am nursing a little bit of a headache, but it's a sunny day. We came off a... A wild card, and uh, we blessedly only have Bellator this weekend, so it, it's it's going to be a nice weekend off, I think. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's 85 out here and sunny. Um, uh, I've been doing all right. I, I've been busy uh, managing Kanye's Twitter account, so uh, <laughs> sorry, everybody. Um, yeah, I'm glad there are no uh, UFC fights to cover that take up seven hours of my day. I'm looking forward to a nice weekend. I'm not going to be able to watch Bellator Live because it's tape delayed on the West Coast. <gasps> yeah, tape yeah, delayed on the West Coast. Yeah. Tried tape delayed by fucking days in the UK, which is so much fun. It's the, it's the best way to make sure you get worldwide fans is to make sure they can't watch your live sporting event live. Bellator, good fucking job. <laughs> anyway, before I get angry about that, let's uh, let's talk what for me is the biggest news of the week. Um, for those of you who didn't catch UFC Atlantic City, there was some drama in the lead-up to it. Leslie Smith was booked to fight um, Aspen Ladd, and Aspen came in 1.8 pounds overweight. Uh, 1.8 pounds overweight, the 136-pound limit, not the 135-pound limit. Uh, Leslie Smith they ended up declining to take that fight. She has said that she was negotiating with the UFC. She was trying to get them to extend her contract for one more fight on the same terms she was on. Um, in return for taking this fight against Aspen Ladd, who's overweight. The UFC declined that offer and instead just paid her her show money and win money and said, we consider your contract fulfilled now, bye, and got rid of her, essentially. For those of you wondering why the UFC would cut a top 10 ranked fighter on a two-fight win streak in a division that only has around 20 fighters at most, the answer is Leslie Smith is heading up Project Spearhead which is the um, effort to increase the UFC athletes' bargaining power. Um, first of all, by determining whether or not they're employees, because if they are, then they can unionize, and that will bring all sorts of benefits on its own, even if a union doesn't get formed. Uh, the UFC has chosen to get rid of Leslie Smith, so she is no longer a, a UFC athlete, so she couldn't be ruled um, an employee, presumably. But her lawyer, Lucas Meadowbrook, um, and her are deciding to pursue legal action and taking the case uh, for essentially constructive dismissal to the National Labor Relations Board. The hope here is that the UFC will say, well, she can't you know, sue us for her, her organizing action because she's not an employee, and that law only applies to employees, at which point they'll be able to petition the NLRB to rule on whether or not UFC athletes are employees. At the moment, they're considered subcontractors, but there are uh, certain rules that determine whether or not someone is employing or, or a subcontractor. You can't just say you're a subcontractor and, and that counts. If you work like an employee, then you're classed an employee. There's a few things in favor of UFC athletes being considered employees. First is that they can't also work elsewhere. Um, they're not allowed to compete in other MMA promotions rather than to the UFC. 
Uh, theoretically, if you're a subcontractor, it means someone hires you to do a job. If you're a carpenter, someone asks you to come in and do some flooring, um, then you're a subcontractor. You're your contractor to do that job. But if they then say, I want you to come and floor my house, but you're not allowed to floor anyone else's house, usually that means you're actually an employee, and that's the case for what has in the TFC fires. There's also um, the controls over how you do the job. For instance, if you have to wear a uniform, which UFC athletes do have to wear, if you have to have a contract that makes you behave a certain way, turn up at certain times, do things in a certain um, manner, which, again, the UFC has their athletes do, then that can be real that, that you're an employee. So there's a very good chance that the UFC athletes are, in fact, employees and not subcontractors. But the UFC are trying to avoid that ruling because that would mean, A, by the UFC's own admission in their antitrust lawsuit, that they would have to pay more to the athletes. They said the reason they don't pay as much as other sports do is because the athletes have no collective bargaining power. That was their own expert came out and said that. So they know for a fact that they'd have to pay athletes more if, if they had collective bargaining. And the second thing is um, it brings a lot of other benefits to athletes as well, like um, 401ks and uh, the potential for health insurance and things like that. It brings all new expectations that athletes don't necessarily have as subcontractors, but that they would have an argument for or even a, a federal requirement to receive if they were considered employees. I know that was a lot to break down, but I, I wanted everyone to understand the, the basics of it. And now I want to know what you guys think about the situation. I think Leslie Smith um, is it totally in the right here. Let's just put it like that. When people say that she was let go and it w had nothing to do with her being the head of Project Spearhead, that is bullshit. Um, and, and some respected journalists are out there pushing that narrative. And... One of the things that I saw was that, you know, Mark Hunt is suing the UFC and they continually let him headline fights. Well, let's break that down for a second. They're having him headline fights in New Zealand or in Australia. And the reason why is because they do not have a, a viable draw over there outside of Robert Whitaker. And even Robin, Robert Whitaker is not as big a draw over there as Mark Hunt is. Mark Hunt is like their hometown hero. He is legendary over there that is why the ufc continues to let him headline fights but you're not seeing him headline fights over here it's over there and there's a big dollar sign attached to it um for those that think that you know uh she shot herself in the foot no she didn't um why would she take a fight when she's being paid not to take it why would she put everything on the line um bodily injury ranking um her 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 win status because she's on a win streak i just think that a lot of people are just looking at things through very narrow glasses and for all you fuckheads that are out there just trashing her oh go to hell just go straight to hell don't pass go don't collect 200 dollars. just go straight to hell there's a lot to unpack here. One, Leslie Smith is not ducking Aspen. Mm -hmm. that, that's just a bullshit thing. That yep. some, it, it hasn't been a lot of fans saying it, but some of them definitely have. This is a woman who fought Chris Cyborg. That was Chris Cyborg's UFC debut. Um, Leslie Smith was also totally justified in not taking the fight. Um, and that's regardless of the, the current situation she's in, given her, her contract status. Uh, I mean, didn't uh, Tim Elliott go through something similar with uh, Pietro Menga a few months ago, and he got the exact same type of, of, of 
a reaction like, hey, why aren't you taking that fight? The other guys take fights uh, when opponents miss weight. Now, in Smith's case, um, it is pretty obvious what the UFC is doing here. Uh, whether Leslie can actually prove that uh, in a potential lawsuit, I don't know. Um, but to the outside observer, it's pretty obvious that Leslie Smith, because of her push with Project Spearhead, they wanted her out. And there's also a reason why as is the case we've seen for other fighters whose contracts are expiring, they put them on the fight pass prelims. And this is the case for Leslie. She was headlining the fight pass prelims. They put her on the bottom rung of the bout order. She could have been on the televised prelims or something, but no, put her on fight pass. That's a way of, of, uh, you know, gaining the advantage in contract negotiations, I assume. And people seem to be hung up on the part where she wanted a $100,000 flat fee for a new UFC deal. She also said that the UFC wouldn't extend her contract on her current deal, which was the $31,000 base purse and the $31,000 to win. So the UFC is totally, they're not even trying to, to, to hide what they're doing here. I'm sure that they'll just come out and put in some you know, bullshit defense that, oh, this was never the thing whatsoever. Leslie Smith obviously didn't want to be a fucking fighter. But no, Leslie Smith is, is continuing to fight the good fight. And it is really shitty that it, you know, fan reaction is not favorable towards her over these last few days because you know fans seem to side with Team UFC all the time. Mm-hmm. And the, it's not just fans. Well, I say not just fans. This front row Brian, who really he is essentially just a fan, but um, he has been pushing this narrative that Leslie Smith doesn't need money for this this legal action because Leslie Smith has set up a GoFundMe. For the, the legal action against the UFC and, and front row Brian, who uh, it, let's be honest, he's he's been a UFC show for for a long time now. He's been out there doing Dana White's dirty work and saying, "Oh, this is a scam. She's basically a TV evangelist. She doesn't need any money." And his his evidence for this is that um, Leslie has made around two hundred thirty thousand dollars in the last year and a half. Now that's how much she made before taxes and before expenses. You take away the taxes, and prices, price portions tend to be taxed very heavily. Uh, you take away her expenses as well, um, and she'll be really lucky if she was making around fifty, sixty thousand after tax. Now, take into perspective that the two years before that, she was probably making around fifty, sixty thousand before tax. So she was probably making basically nothing after tax the years before that. So it would be an absolute miracle if she didn't have debt racked up from those years. Then take into account that her future earning power has also been harmed. It's going to be very hard for her to make that money again. It's not like she's making you know 120000 before tax every year and she's going to continue to do that. No, that was her career peak. That was her career high. She's going to have a hard time making that again in the future. So she's essentially, she might have this money for that one 18-month period. You might have looked at the 18-month period where she made the most money in her entire life. She's not made that before. She's not going to continue to make it. Money's not going to last forever. And even if it did, even if we assume that you know she would continue to make that amount of money, if she's only making fifty or sixty thousand after tax in a year, then that's not enough to fight against the UFC with the NLRB. You can't mount an effective action for that. Like, how much does he think it costs to to do a legal action like this? Like, yeah, she's got Lucas Middlebrook who will probably work for cheaper, even pro bono. But things like depositions cost money. Things like you know discovery costs money to do. And only having one lawyer and taking on the UFC's entire team of lawyers would be stupidity. So they're probably going to hire another lawyer as well. And it won't be cheap either. So you take into account that you're going to have to do all this discovery, all these depositions. 
you take into account that the trial is probably going to drag on if it ends up going to court, um, if the NLRB rule and, and the UFC decides to challenge in court or whatever, then it's going to take a lot of time and a lot of money. And you want to do it right first time because you don't get do-overs. It's not, it's not going to happen. It's not like, oh, hey, I'm, I'm, I've challenged it and the NLRB didn't roll my favours, so I'm going to do it again. It doesn't work like that. If she challenges it and, and they turn her down, there's not a whole lot of appeals process she can go for. So she has to make sure she gets it right first time. So this idea that she's got plenty of money and she doesn't need the legal funding as a scam, that's just assholes being assholes. That's just someone trying to put across Dana White's you know, point of view. It's just someone trying to shell for the UFC to do whatever they can to make sure this isn't a success. So if you do see someone putting that point across, tell them they're talking out their fucking ass. Tell them they're talking shit. Feel free to tell them I said that as well because it's absolute <laughs> bullshit. Anyone who knows anything about the finances of fighters or the finances of, of funding a legal action or the finances of funding an NLRB action against a $4.4 billion corporation company will tell you, no, making $250,000 before tax in a two-year period isn't enough to fund that sort of action successfully. Tell them to go to hell. <laughs> um, also, remember, Lucas Middlebrook is also the lawyer for Project Spearhead, and he is doing that pro bono as well. He has his own practice. He has probably his own uh, lawsuits from his practice on his plate, too. So, yeah, that, that there's a lot of time constraints there for Lucas. So, as Ian said, definitely another lawyer. Um, one other thing that I saw that was out there was uh, people bringing up uh, George St. Pierre and uh, so, uh, Donald Cerrone when they were going to do the um that they got uh, they got very sweet contracts right after that sweet fight deals right after that did it ever occur to you that those sweet contracts and fight deals came to get them away from because that's what <laughs> happened there that's, yeah. that, that's all I have to say on that but you know I just saw that that point coming up a lot, and it just seems so stupid to me. Mm -hmm. um, before we go to the next topic, I just want to point out, not only on one side of the coin you get Lizzie Smith essentially having her contract bought out, but the UFC, of course, not having that much money. There was another fight mm -hmm. canceled on this card, uh, Oka Sasaki against uh, Magomed Bibulatov. Now, oh. Bibulatov had a back injury, so he pulled out on fight day, and Sasaki only got partial compensation he only got about 10, like, like half of his con half of his contracted purse yeah he got so, ten thousand yeah. and no reebok money and I, I assume that he didn't even get the chance to weigh in so that is bullshit to me i mean that is is, is, a, is a situation where he can't control that the other guy is injured on fight day well, why are you only giving him 10 grand that that does that cover his camp what about I mean, all the people that, you know, all of those injured fighters? There were six fighters that didn't get to fight on 223 because of something they had zero control over. But the UFC couldn't find it in their budget to give those six guys their bonus money? Come I've on. Got it. I've got it all figured out now. The UFC knew that something was going to happen pertaining to Leslie Smith's final fight. So they had to pull that money together and then use that up to pay Leslie Smith to, to have her contract bought out. So tough luck for everybody else. They're, they're actually doing something generous. Aye, aye, aye. I mean, ev every single week now, it's, it, we're getting fight cancellations, and the UFC is, is not looking good as far as who they decide to pay and who they don't decide to pay. The double standards are just disgusting. And in the Leslie Smith situation, this is just brutal from them and not surprising. Now, moving on to the fights that actually did happen, 
in Atlantic City. The fight of the night was uh, Mirab Duvashvili against Ricky Simone. And for the first time ever, I'm pretty sure for the first time ever, we had a stoppage win literally with time expired for the entire fight. 15-minute mark. It's a TKO uh, win for Ricky Simone. Now, if you didn't see the fight, final minute, Duvashvili, uh, Duvalishvili went for a takedown. And he, he might have knocked himself out right there when you look at the video. But Simone went for a choke. And it looked like he went out and that the ref didn't say he was out. The fight continued. Mirab spent most of the final minute essentially riding an imaginary bicycle. So the horn sounds and uh, he, he tried to get up. The commission put him back down. And then the fight is ruled a TKO coming out of commercial break because I guess he was considered out cold. So the really insists that he wasn't out. But, you know, you don't take the fighter's word for it be- all the time because I've seen boxers get knocked out cold and say they weren't even knocked down. Um, so, Big John McCarthy. Yeah, you, just to just interject here, you literally can't tell. When you go unconscious from a lack of blood flow, um, mm-hmm. one of the things that happens is your brain stops being able to write short term memories. Um, so, it's literally impossible for you to know if you went unconscious or not because you, you don't remember doing it. Your brain isn't writing short term memories once you fall unconscious, which means everything that happened in like the past three to eight seconds is gone from your memory once you go unconscious. So, it's impossible for someone to remember if they actually got choked out or not. Yep. It's similar to the fact that I can never tell the exact moment that my dreams start when I go to sleep. It's the annoying part. Yeah. That, uh, yeah, Big John McCarthy and Mark Goddard, uh, Goddard both believe that uh, this was the right ruling. So Big John said he drives his head into the canvas, and then and you can see if you go back and watch it, watch Mirab, he hits and his arms go limp. Ricky immediately rolls him over. And how is it that all of a sudden this guy that you had all this trouble with in this entire fight and you can just see miraculously, you just reverse and roll him over and grab a neck crank uh, without them doing anything to stop it. So McCarthy's belief is that Mirab essentially did the Gray Maynard treatment and, and, and knocked himself out. Uh, and that it's kind of just referee error. So what do you guys think? Did uh, Was this the right call or do you think this would have or should have been a split decision win because that's what it would have been on the scorecards had it gone the distance. I have to admit, I did not see the fight. I was out, and I have not reviewed it since. Um, so I, whatever Ian says, I'm just going to err on the side of caution and go with what Ian says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, it's a, it's a difficult one because if the referee honestly believed he was unconscious at the bell then that's the right call the right call is is that it would technically it's a technical submission not a technical knockout but that's splitting hairs if he he was sure he was unconscious at the bell yeah that was the right call the problem is from what we saw on tv once the bell went he started getting up pretty much immediately so from what we saw on tv he wasn't unconscious at the bell and so it probably shouldn't have been with a technical submission it's it comes down to whether or not you think the referee was correct in knowing that he was unconscious at the bell. Um, personally, I don't think he was. Um, the the imaginary bicycle thing, that could quite easily have been a, a way for him to keep blood flow flowing to his head um, by stimulating the blood flow in the lower extremities and helping the, the vagal nerve, um, which starts from down at the groin, helping the, that, helping the, the blood flow through the arteries, down from the, the groin up to the carotid as well. That can help um, keep blood flowing. It's the same thing. You look at pilots when they're, you know, they're subject to high G forces and the blood starts flowing out of their brain. And you start to, that sort of thing. The idea there is, it's the same idea. You're forcing blood back up into the brain. 
it's possible he was trying to do the same thing because both of his carotid arteries certainly went blocked off. One of them was blocked off fully, one of them may have been partially blocked off. So it's very possible that he was keeping off blood in his brain to, to remain conscious there, and that's why he was moving like that. It's also possible that he was essentially unconscious, and that was an involuntary movement, which uh, people will be like, well, how could he be unconscious if he was moving? You you still do instinctive movements even when you're when you're unconscious, even when the blood's been cut off to your brain. Your your body will the brain is still firing signals. They just happen to be sort of random signals that you're not necessarily controlling anymore. So you see people keep doing the same thing they've been doing. Striking out with their arms is common. Twitch, you know, the legs kicking out is also common. So it doesn't just because he was moving doesn't necessarily mean he was conscious. I think the the right thing to do might have been just to let it go to the scorecards. If there's any doubt that the guy was unconscious and it's the last round, just let it go to the scorecards. That's my take on it. But if the ref was convinced he was unconscious, then the ref made the right call. Yeah, it's difficult. I watched it again last night because I thought it was a bad call uh, when I heard the decision. But I looked at the takedown again. And yeah, this is similar to, uh, I can't remember which fight it was. It might have been uh, Dylan Andrews against Sam Alfie, where uh, a failed takedown leads to him being unconscious right on the ground. So it definitely looks like Mirab's arms go limp. So the referee probably could have seen that and, and, and considered, okay, maybe I stopped the fight right there. But because Simon went for a choke right away, I, I guess they figured, okay, this is just natural, natural movement. It was a quick reversal. Um, but it's interesting. I, does New Jersey have instant replay? I believe they do. Yes, but if I remember, it can only be used in very specific circumstances around fouls. Okay, so that is interesting because I, the Valashvili did not look out cold at the end of the fight. Like he, as you said, he's he's trying to get up, um, and then the commission doctors tell him to, to to sit back down. So really, the the, the part that should have caused a stoppage would be the the failed takedown that causes arms to go limp and then that's going to be considered referee error because it looks as if like the, the referee consulted uh, mark goddard and goddard said okay he's out and then they called it a tko so it's just really bad luck for devalish philly because his first fight was a, a controversial split decision this fight he was winning pretty much all the way until he wasn't so i i can understand uh Devalishvili and his team wanting to appeal this, uh, but we so rarely see fights get successfully over, uh, overturned on appeal because at, at that point, you can't necessarily prove at which point he was conscious compared to when unconscious. And it, it was, it, it fortunately, marred a really good fight because it was a back-and-forth battle, and uh, we'll see how it goes as far as their appeal. But I, I actually agree with Big John here that it should have been uh, a TKO, but not for the same reasons as everybody else believes. Yeah, it's one of those situations where the, the the fact of the matter is that you can't use instant replay because it wasn't a foul. And even if you do challenge it, when to call a fight is at a referee's discretion. If the referee says, well, I thought you were unconscious, or I thought you weren't intelligently defending yourself, you can't challenge that. You can't like appeal based on, I could intelligently defend myself. The referee was wrong. That's that's not there. That's, that's not one of the things you can appeal. So you can try it. It's going to be a waste of time because you just, it doesn't work. You can't appeal that stuff. Anyway, let's move on to a totally different topic, which is drug testing. I love talking about drug testing. Junior Dos Santos, um, Antonio Rogero Neguera, and I believe another fighter whose name escapes me, all received... Marcos Rogero de Lima. There we go. All received six-month suspensions, reduced from one year and two years, respectively. 
um, dilemma I was facing, I believe, too. For uh, after a USADA investigation, it was kicked off by Junior Dos Santos's positive drug test for hydrochlorothiazide back in August 2017. Now, hydrochlorothiazide, for those of you who kept up with what we were saying at the time, is in everything. It gets everywhere. It's been found in ibuprofen. It's one of these things that is detectable in the tiniest, tiniest amounts and it's really hard to clean out of equipment, so it ends up showing up in places it shouldn't relatively often, not not just in athlete drug tests, but in, you know, stuff in pharmacies and actual medications and things. Now, what happened here with Junior Santos and, and, and Little Noggin stuff that's very interesting is they actually went out of their way to contact a compound pharmacy to have their supplements made for them. A, a compound pharmacy is essentially a pharmacy that makes up drugs to order. And in this case, they also made up supplements. And before this, the, the pharmacy apparently had a, a pristine reputation. Apparently, there was no reason to believe that, you know, they were involved in anything dodgy. And even now, there's no reason to believe they were involved in anything dodgy because the amounts seem to be consistent with leftover contamination. Um, and the, the drugs that were involved are both legal drugs. So it's not like a, an elite, the pharmacy was also compounding illegal drugs or anything along those lines. And what seems to have happened is, although the, the pharmacy had sort of assured the fighters that there was no risk of contamination, and that's one of the reasons the fighters used it at the pharmacy, is to ensure that they were getting their supplements from a reputable source, turns out it didn't work out that way for them. And in fact, all three of them tested positive for, for prohibited substances. Um, in the case of Noguera, and the case of Junior Dos Santos, it's hydrochlorothiazide, so we'll focus on that. That's an important one. Now, this isn't a performance enhancer on its own. Uh, as a diuretic, and the amounts found, it's useless as a diuretic. It wouldn't do anything at all. Uh, but it's very, very easy to detect. The issue, the, if you will, is because it's so very easy to detect, it turned up in, in their samples, and they were given a suspension. The Santos was given a, a preliminary suspension. And it took about nine months to have all this stuff tested and to have it sent to USADA, the stuff was held up at customs, they had to question the, the pharmacy involved, the compound pharmacy, it took like nine months to get this resolved and Junior got an, a six month sentence. So because this took so long to investigate, he, he ended up serving longer than his sentence actually was. In addition to this, if we look at what happened in the George Barnett case, in the George Barnett case, the, the independent arbitrator basically wrote, look, this guy done everything he, he, he could to avoid this, and it still happens, so he's getting a reprimand. Very good chance if Junior Dos Santos had taken this to arbitration, he'd have got the same thing, he'd have got a reprimand. But USADA do not give out reprimands on their own for this stuff. They, they've refused to do it consistently. Remember, they wanted to give Barnett years and years of suspension, and he got a reprimand from arbitration. And even in cases where athletes have done everything right and they've allowed USADA to determine the punishment, they've still received months of suspension because USADA refused to give them reprimands whatever reason. So Junior missed out on basically a year of his career because he got pulled from a fight um, that, was that was supposed to happen back at the end of last year. So he hasn't fought since May 2017. And he's lost almost a year to this because it took so long to investigate. For a substance which wouldn't have given him any performance advantage anyway, especially since it was an out-of-competition test, and there's no reason to be taking a fucking diuretic out of competition, it wouldn't have given him any benefit whatsoever. It can technically be used as a masking agent, but not really. It, it is just because of the increased urine production and stuff. It doesn't actually mask stuff. Like It's not like you take it and then it's like giving them fake urine where they can't detect the drug or anything. That's not how it works. It just dilutes <laughs> things. They so, put an invisible force field over their urine. 
Yeah, we've got a situation here where a drug which couldn't have possibly given him any performance advantage at the time he's taken it and turned out to predictably be a tainted supplement because it's been in tainted frickin' everything cost him nine months of his career. What do you guys think about this? First of all, I hate the fact that there's that ding on their record, that six-month ding that says, you know, the performance-enhancing drug was found in in this sample or whatever. Basically, it's, it's a black mark on their record. I fucking hate that, especially when they... they they found that it was tainted that you know a, a whole investigation was launched and they found that it was a tainted supplement and they still get that six month ding that shows on their record that fucking annoys the shit out of me um i'm glad that they you know that they're they're free and clear to to, to fight again but still that ugh, that blight on their record bothers me to no end well, the only good thing that came out of this, aside from that they're backdated six-month bans, is um, Junior Dos Santos ended up not fighting Francis Ngannou. Yeah. I imagine that <laughs> would have ended quite poorly for him. I, I would have taken the drug test suspension. Give me the six months. To, don't, let me, uh, don't let me go in there and fight him instead. But this is, what, Ju Junior Dos Santos, Little Nog, Rogerio de Lima, uh, Josh Barnett, I think Tim Means... Uh, Lyman Good. We've had more there's, than a half been dozen. More than that, Yoel so. Romero. Yeah. Yoel Romero. So we've had what it, it, uh, maybe ten fighters within the last year, year and a half, who Justin have had. Justin Ledet as well. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. Justin Ledet. Yeah. yeah, and he got four months, and that was despite the fact that he uh, sent pictures of all supplements to Usada, who told him it was okay to take them, and and uh, there there was. No risk and stuff in there. That, uh, see that right there. Jesus Christ. You, you Sada says, go ahead, and then they still give him four months. They still give him the black well, mark. I should point out, it's almost certain that what you said actually said is they're not on the high risk list rather than go ahead and take them. But yeah, Same like thing. he took every step. Yeah. He still took every single step he could to protect himself, and he still ended up without a four month suspension. It's, Continue, it's, Mickey. It's the equivalent of the asterisk, and it fucking sucks. Yeah. Yep. I mean, that, well, the moral of the, of the story here is when you see these potential anti-doping violations and then these fighters come out and say, you know, th this is bullshit, uh, you know, I think I had a Tate and supplement. Now, this isn't going to be the case 100% of the time, but maybe, just maybe, fans should actually start taking this a little more seriously because now we've had more high-profile cases over the last year that show, yes, Fighters can test positive for tainted supplements, something that isn't their fault whatsoever. And uh, kudos to Junior, much in the same way Josh Barnett did, for, for doing his due diligence and uh, avoiding any serious punishment because, you know, that, that could have been, uh, you know, a, a major black mark on his career. And as Steffi said, it's still going to be an asterisk, which is annoying because, you know, it, it's hydrochlorothiazide. It's, it's basically what... It's, it's a diuretic. No, nobody thinks that Junior is there to become a roided monster just using high hydrochlorothiazide. Oh, boy. So USADA is in the headlines again. But, you know, this is a happier outcome. We, we've had uh, some better outcomes come over the last few weeks, and I'm looking forward to seeing Junior fight again. Little Nog, not so much. But Junior, yes. And the fans are fucking terrible because they don't pay attention to all the fine de the finer details to the story. So now, because these guys got their temporary suspensions or their six-month suspensions because they sat out for nine months before anything happened, they automatically get lumped in with the Reuters, the cheaters category. And that's what's so bothersome. I, I To this day, it 
bugs the shit out of me that everybody thinks Canelo is a cheater because of the tainted meat thing and because his test was the first time he was tested in Mexico. It bothers me to no end. And I blame Ian for this because he's opened my eyes wide. So now... I, I, I actually question things educationally and when I see dumbasses online doing the same thing that I probably did 10 years ago, um, I just want to punch people. It's all your fault, Ian. <laughs> Here's where I sit on this. Um, if someone tests positive out of competition for a drug which wouldn't be giving them any performance enhancing benefit in training, I think you should probably be like, oh, we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt and not, not give you a preliminary suspension. Because the reason for the preliminary suspension and stuff is to ensure that no one gets to compete with an unfair advantage. That's why as soon as someone tests positive for something and can give an advantage, you suspend them. Because even if it turns out to be a tainted supplement, you want to be like, well, okay, but you still had steroids in your system, you still could have got an advantage, so we have to you know, pull you from the fight. And that's fine. In this case, there was no risk. Oh, hey, sorry, um, we're not going to let you fight in case you peed a bit too much three months before your fight. Really? That's, that, that's hey, well, sorry, yeah, we would let you fight, but it turns out you being able to pee more is an unfair advantage in training somehow. It's just fucking ridiculous. So in a situation like that where you've got a substance you know turns up in contaminated supplements and medications a lot, which hydrochlorothiazide does, and you know it's not giving any advantage in training, why the fuck are you suspending the guy in the first place? When it comes to clenbuterol and tainted meat, they don't do that. If you test positive for clenbuterol when you're in a place that um, has a high likelihood of tainted meat and you test for low traces of it under one nanogram per milliliter, USADA, WADA, or other competent and doping agencies, they don't even preliminary suspend you. They don't announce anything. Not until they've done an investigation. And the reason is, if, if it has tainted meat and it looks all like it has tainted meat, you're not going to get an advantage from it anyway. And you should be doing that with other substances as well. I get erring on the side of caution for stuff like anabolic steroids that could potentially have been given a, a significant advantage during training. But if it's a fucking diuretic or something, if, it, if it's something that's not going to do that, why the hell are you erring so much on the side of caution that you take so much of a guy's career that he ends up out for longer than his fucking suspension was because of how long it takes you to investigate it? No, if he's not getting a competitive advantage while you're investigating it, let him fucking compete. This doesn't seem like a complicated or a difficult thing to me. But, hey, I'm not the one being paid millions of dollars to run a drug testing program. That's USADA and all of the people there, there who, who get nice big salaries for running these drug testing programs. So what do I know? Real quick, Ian, I just have to have you do this one more time because I think it bears repeating. Tell us about one nanogram per milliliter. Tell us exactly how that breaks down. Yeah, one nanogram per milliliter is like um, a billionth of a of a gram, basically. Uh, if you so, if you if you imagine to, to imagine a gram, if you imagine a pill of acetaminophen, for instance, um, uh, rather I should say it's a millionth, but. He, Canelo had two tests, 0 0.08 in nanograms per milliliter and 0 0.8 nanograms per milliliter. So he went from less than a billion of a gram per milliliter to less than a millionth of a gram per milliliter. To give you an idea of how small that is, one pill of acetaminophen um, that you take is around half a gram. And it's not that's not even half a gram because there's also a bunch of other shit put in it to bulk it up and stuff like that and make it go down easier. But that's how much half a gram is. It's one pill. It's half a gram. And what they detected in Canelo was a millionth to a billionth of, of that, essentially. Because it was 0 0.6 to 0 0.8 and 0 0.06 to 0 0.08. So 
a millionth to a billionth of a pill of acetaminophen. If you imagine how small that is, that's what they were detecting in his in his urine per milliliter. And if you um, want to know that in liquid measure, one milliliter equals twenty drops. So if yeah. you go by a drop, okay, one milliliter is twenty drops, and so. Think of a drop and then break that down how many times he hit. <laughs> so one milliliter, if it weighs the same as water, um, which urine roughly does, would be the equivalent of one gram. So you can imagine that one milliliter of urine is one gram of urine. And since we found 0.08 nanograms per milliliter, that is like a, a millionth to a billionth of a gram. So a millionth to a billionth of one milliliter of urine that they took from his sample they broke that down so much that they had to be able to see a billionth of it. A billionth <laughs> to detect how much was in his urine. They had to break it down into parts per billion. Can you imagine breaking something down into billions? Like, imagine for a second you, you have anything. And imagine a roll of toilet paper, right? You have a, a roll of toilet paper and you roll it up. And a standard one is like 240 sheets or something or like 300 sheets. Imagine how big that would be to get to a billion sheets. A billion. And that's what they essentially had to do. That that thing would be bigger than your fucking house. That thing would be the size of your street to get one goddamn one sheet, which is what they were looking for. So that's how little was found in the year. That's the tiny amount that was found. People are acting like it's a huge amount. No, it's it's so small. People, like, you look up in the <laughs> sky, it would be like picking less than one star out of the sky. There's not even You can't even see enough stars in the sky for this to even be an accurate comparison but imagine looking up at the sky every night for a year and one star on one of those nights you have to find the right star on the right night it's only there one star on one night that's it the entire year that's what they found in his fucking urine that's that's how much so how many yeah how many grains of sand on the beach <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah it's, it's and ridiculous. then and then ian the the worst part is this right out of competition yeah so uh, it's it's ridiculous. People, are, you know, it, it could have been having huge effects. Well, one, if he wasn't training at the time and he he wasn't training hard, it wouldn't have had any good effects on on him muscle wise. Even if he was doping, and the amount you dope with is like so much more than you find in meat. So much more, like by a factor of like twenty usually. And it, it's not one of these things you can microdose with. This is one of these other arguments. People say, oh, maybe he was microdosing with Clombuterol. You can't microdose with Clombuterol. People learn a tiny little bit about fucking drugs and drug testing, and all of a sudden they think they're experts. Listen, you can microdose with things that your body produces naturally, typically. You can microdose with a few things, but generally it's things your body produces naturally or that you're mimicking things the body produces naturally. And the reason microdosing works is because you slightly increase how much is available in your body without increasing it so much that your body has a, a, a negative feedback loop occur and start, starts producing less on its own. That's the sort of aim when you're microdosing. But you can't microdose with, let's say, acetaminophen. If you take, like, a tenth of a pill of acetaminophen every day, you don't walk around feeling no pain. You get no fucking benefit because it's not enough to do anything. That's why you can't just take a tenth of a drug and have it work just the same as if you're taking the full drug. That's not how it works. That's why drugs have dosages. Like... Beyond a certain point, they just don't do anything. They're not there's not enough to be physiologically active because you, your body doesn't just work on a, a scale of oh hey I took a tiny amount of things we're going to somehow magically make that enough to fill your whole bloodstream 
and go on all of the cells and receptors that you have. We're just going to we're gonna magically multiply how much you gave us so it works like that. That's not what happens. You have to take enough for it to do something. So you can't just microdose with everything. If you, if you take fucking the amount of clenbuterol found in a tainted steak every day, you're not going to turn into fucking Mike Tyson. That's not what's going to happen. You can't just eat steak and be like, yeah, I'm on steroids now. I'm going to get fucking huge. No, you have to take like fucking 20 times more than that for it to do anything, you fucking idiots. Now, that's not to say that Ian doesn't microdose with vodka every day, but that's a whole <laughs> other ball game. Now, uh, as we wrap up that free and clear, extra, super duper awesome bonus Q&A with Captain Kid, we're going to take you into some sports that can't stop no double leg with Mr. Mookie Alexander. Yep, and the uh, the first topic here is a bit of a bombshell that was dropped by Deontay Wilder and his team. So, to backtrack a little bit, Anthony Joshua's promoter, Eddie Hearn, offered Wilder a $12.5 billion flat fee, of course, for, for the potential big super fight. So, Wilder's team scoffed at that, and they have come up with an amazing counter offer. <laughs> it's almost too, too much to believe. An outrageous offer of $50 million for Joshua against 50% of revenue. In other words, and, and this is quoting Lou DiBella, the, the fight would take place at the end of the year. In other words, they have to fight each other next. No interim bouts for, for either of them, no nothing. No rematch clause. And we're taking all of the risk. $50, 50 million against 50% means that if the fight does $40 million in revenue, Joshua still gets $50 million. If it does $200 million in revenue, Joshua gets $100 million. So it's $50 million guaranteed. So ESPN also added that Wilder's team would choose the venue. Now, Eddie Hearn is in the U.S. right now because he's got a boxing card to promote on Saturday in Brooklyn. But he's in there in the U.S. now for negotiations. And he says this offer is great PR, but he hasn't actually seen a contract. And the kicker for this is Wilder's team says that <laughs> Joshua's side has got 24 hours to agree to this. So in other words, by end of Thursday. So keep in mind that Wilder has never made more than $2.1 million disclosed. He's never been on pay-per-view. And now they're wanting to offer up $50 million for Anthony Joshua. So is anyone buying this offer as legit? Because I'm starting to believe that Eddie Hearn is right, that this is just PR to spin it so that, you know, Wilder comes out as a good guy. Right. It certainly is. And does anybody have flashbacks to when Floyd and Pacquiao were trying to make their fight and Floyd was, you know... Uh, obviously the a side there and pacquiao was at first demanding 50 percent just like this that's what it reminds me of and i hope we don't get stuck in that cycle where that we don't get to see this fight for several years because we need to see this fight now but deontay wilder is not worth the 50 million on that i'm sorry i i can't, I can't get behind that um i love the idea of the fight but um I got to say, Anthony Joshua is definitely the A-side here. So, uh, yeah. I uh, I think it's probably a offer, but it'll come with strings that we're not seeing. I think it'll be one of these things where, you know, yeah, Joshua will get the 50 million up front and the 50%, but he has to sign a four-fight deal with Showtime or HBO or, or whatever the case may be. I think it'll be one of those deals. I don't think it's a straight one-fight contract for, for this money. I think it's going to be one of these things but you have to sign with this promoter, or but you have to agree to these other fights and on, on this station. You know, I, I don't think I, I don't think it's a straight up one and done contract. If it is, Josh, I'll take it, and he'll be happy to take it. It's fantastic, great pay. But I don't think it is. I think there'll be hidden strings attached to that that will hope will probably come out. I, I 
because it doesn't make any sense for them to for for Wilder's side to have someone who will pay that fifty million dollars, knowing that there's a good chance that they're not going to make any profit on it because promoting a fight like this is going to be expensive. And Wilder doesn't have fifty million dollars to to give himself to to give out, so someone's going to be bankrolling this. Wilder still has to be paid as well, so you take. The fifty million dollars you give him to Anthony Joshua, you figure out how much you'd have to make in pay per view just to make that back. And you let's assume for a second the pay per view costs a hundred dollars, and the, the promoters or in this case the fighters will get around fifty percent of that. So you fifty dollars per pay per view. So you sell a million pay per views just to cover Anthony Joshua's contract. Then you'd have to sell about a million more. To cover all the expenses, advertising, um, the promoter overheads, the cut that they're going to get from everything, and then to give Deontay Wilder even like ten, the twelve and a half million that he's been offered from Hearn, you'd have to hit about two million buys. So, yeah, basically, if this fight does less than two million buys in the US, not good in the UK because UK pays way, way more, uh, way, way less. You you make like fifteen bucks, fifteen dollars per pay per view in the UK, not fifty. So. It would have to do about two million buys in the US, and I'm not sure Anthony Joshua or Deontay Wilder are two million <laughs> two million buy pay per view in the US. Like you just fight in the UK, you get two million buys in the UK, but it's not. If you do it in the middle of the night in the US, you're probably only going to get a couple hundred thousand buys in the UK. Like the the Mayweather McGregor fight, you're probably going to get under five hundred thousand buys. So I don't know. I, uh, it's a big risk for Deontay Wilder's side. I don't. I don't think that this fight would do anywhere close to the $2 million in, in the US that it would have to do to be profitable for everyone involved. Yeah, I, I'm as soon as I saw that that Wilder seems offering $50 million and the 50-50 split of the revenue, I said, so uh, we're not going to see this fight then, are we? <laughs> because, I mean, the odds of... And Eddie Hearn also said, with all due respect to Deontay Wilder, I don't believe his side have got $50 million. So, like, the only way this happens is if... And Ian somewhat alluded to this, is if Showtime is bankrolling this because Joshua's contract with Showtime actually expired after the, the Joseph Parker fight. So if the deal is, okay, fight Wilder next and sign a multi-fight deal with Showtime, then maybe that's where, where, where some of the money's coming in. But um, see, the problem is Wilder has never fought on pay-per-view in the U.S. Joshua has never fought in the U.S. and has never fought in prime time in the U.S. So they would have to knock this out of the park in terms of promotion, ticketing, and basically just hitting hitting home runs every step of the way for this to turn into a, a profitable event. So I think uh, they got to be a little more realistic with the money because when you get into the $50 million range, you're talking about this being one of like the five biggest boxing matches in the history of, of, of the sport. And I'm not entirely sure it'd be bigger than Canelo versus Triple G. And Canelo versus Triple G did a $30 million gig. See, that's in what I was to, talking about with the with when Pacquiao and Mayweather were trying to get going, and and they Pacquiao kept Pacquiao's team kept trying to demand half and this and that and these exorbitant salaries. It just doesn't fly. Exactly. When when the B side is offering fifty million dollars, and the B side has never been in a big money fight, you immediately have to be suspicious of of how legit the offer is. How, how much now, do you um, like the idea that they pick the venue? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we give you this great deal. Oh, and we pick the venue. For uh, Eddie they, Hearn they be, to accept. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure that, that they'll agree to that. Um, before I move on to the, to the next topic, uh, people need to recognize how good the Charlo brothers are because I, unfortunately, covering the UFC, missed out on Jamal Charlo 
snatching another body on Showtime last night. A left hook knockout of Hugo Centeno, and he called out Triple G afterward. Jamal and Jamel, those guys are must-watch TV. And uh, kudos to Adrian Broner for his draw against Jesse Vargas. And the follow-up was he, I believe, accidentally mixed up Martin Luther King with Rodney King in the post-fight interview. He said, I beat that ass the same way they beat up Martin Luther King's ass. I am almost certain he meant Rodney King. But (laughs) Adrian Broner... Uh, never change in the sense that I know he's never going to change for the better. Now, uh, moving on, in less than two months, we've got the FIFA World Cup in Russia, and two sets of Russian teams have been fined for racist behavior. Uh, Spartak Moscow's fans were accused of uh, aiming monkey chants at uh, FC Tosno player Nuno Rocha, who is black, while some Zenit St. Petersburg supporters allegedly chanted a Nazi slogan during a league game. So Spartak's next League Cup game will have a partial stadium closure, which will limit attendance, obviously. Um, Each club has been fined $1,600 U.S. And uh, by the way, the Russian national team was charged with its own fans making racist taunts towards black French players in a recent exhibition game. So um, nothing to see here. This is extremely normal behavior. I assume this will not be a problem in June. And by pure coincidence, Russia's group includes Egypt, Uruguay, and Saudi Arabia. So we're definitely not going to have any racist chants going on during the World Cup. No, none at all whatsoever. I mean, if uh, if they're starting to, if Russia's starting to find their their own clubs for racism, they're going to get super rich in a hurry. So that's something. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way. It's a good way of raising some cash. <laughs> I mean, yeah. UEFA and stuff have been. Uh, feigning and in, in charging Russian cause of racism for a while now. Just this season, um, Zenit St. Petersburg got two charges for racist fans from UEFA. So, yeah. FIFA charged the Russian national team, um, well, their, their fans, for racist abuse of French players last month. So, there's a, a real ongoing underlying problem with Russian fans being super racist, which, I mean, I guess that explains why they elected Trump, so yay. (laughs) The thing is, it happens throughout Europe, where we see countries and and clubs get get fined for for racist behaviors, but it seems to happen disproportionately in in Russia and and, and some other parts of Eastern. I can't even imagine why. (laughs) By the way, uh, Yeah, Italians being racist? We never see that in other combat sports (laughs) like boxing. No, we don't, never. Um, by the way, Fox has got the World Cup this year, and Fox spent four hundred plus million dollars. They assumed that the U.S. would make the World Cup. Of course, we didn't. So they are totally half-assing their coverage uh, this year. They're only sending four announcers uh, to Russia, and everybody else is going to be announcing from a studio in Los Angeles. So <laughs> they became cheapskates in a hurry. You know, and that is so stupid in my opinion. They should be giving that the best coverage ever so that they can make the most out of that shitty situation. Instead, they're going to take that shitty situation and just make it worse. What I want to know is how the announcers are going to pick the USA to beat all the teams when they're not even there. (laughs) Yes, this is going to be the best part. I I mentioned on Twitter yesterday that two years ago we were in a, a... semi-final against Argentina in the Copa America tournament. Now, Argentina's got Lionel Messi and, and a bunch of other s- superstars, but Messi is regarded as one of the best players ever. And They're all of one our of American... the most successful countries in history. Yep. Like, Argentina is like, if you make a top 10 of, like, the top 10 countries at soccer of all time, Argentina is well in that top 10. Mm-hmm. Yep, and of course, they just were World Cup runners-up. In, in 2014. So uh, 
there were four pundits on the Fox broadcast team. One of them was from Argentina. The other three were American. So Argentine pundit uh, Fernando Fiore, who's very popular here on the, the Spanish networks, he picked Argentina. The other three American pundits all picked the U.S. The U.S. <laughs> lost... <laughs> the U.S. lost 4 nothing. I remember the game distinctly. We lost 4 nothing, and we did not register a shot on goal. Oh, so, uh, yeah, jingoism can only take you so far. And I have a, I got to brush up on my Spanish because I'm probably going to be watching most of this World Cup on Telemundo. So, yeah, just to give you guys an idea of um, the, the World Cup record for Argentina since 1986. Now, the World Cup, um, including qualifying and stuff, is like close to 100 countries, I believe. Out of that, Argentina in the past one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, past eight World Cups, right? They won one, came second twice, and reached the quarterfinals a further three times. So, in more than half of every World Cup, Argentina have been within the top eight teams in the world. And that's just in the last, like, eight World Cups. More than, like, in the last one, two, three, four, five, six, the last eight World Cups, they've been in the top eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Seven times of the last eight, they've been in the top eight. Seven of the last eight. That, uh, they won once, came second twice. That's, yeah, that gives you an idea of how good Argentina were. But the American commentators, three quarters of the, well, all of the Americans thought the USA, which uh, has never finished first or second, and I think has one quarterfinal spot ever, they thought they were going to beat Argentina. Which, <laughs> that's everything you need to know about how good uh, American sportscasters are understanding soccer right there. Jesus Christ. I'm so surprised that Fox is so convinced that we're going to beat the foreigners at something that we're not better <laughs> at. <laughs> anyway, the last topic, and I normally would not post something mundane like this on here, but there is an MMA tie into this. Uh, the NFL draft is here. In fact, when we're done recording this, I got to spend the next three hours of my night covering the NFL draft. And this is basically Christmas for football fans until the season actually starts. And one player who has drawn interest because of his productivity on the field is uh, Antonio Callaway, who's a receiver from the University of Florida. Now, the problem is he has got a ton of off-the-field issues. He got involved in credit card fraud. He had a sexual assault allegation, which he was eventually cleared of, and a marijuana citation. Now, with this being the NFL and their draconian rules as far as marijuana, Callaway just tested positive for marijuana in a sample collected at the scouting combine two months ago. Now, he claims he was overhydrated, and that's what caused the sample dilution. Uh, the agent also said the sample was diluted, and that agent is none other than Malky Callaway. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Amazing. So, Callaway, even worse, is Callaway has since admitted he did smoke marijuana in the weeks leading up to, to the combine. He takes full responsibility for everything. Now, Testing for weed is obviously stupid at this point, but I am just laughing my ass off that Kawa, who was literally hired two weeks ago, has managed to be in drug test defense mode in two different sports. This is just going to be, you know, every other week it's going to be, oh, uh, yeah, you know, that's tainted supplement, uh, that's a sample dilution, that test never actually happened. This is Malky Kawa's life right now. I can't you, wait to see how he deals with this. I tell you what, uh, when, when you see a chick that always goes for a loser and you say to yourself, that girl certainly has a type. Malki Kawa <laughs> certainly has an athlete type, too, because, boy, his, his athletes are embroiled in all kinds of shit. But what really got me is that <clears throat> don't uh, agents for NFL players have to be uh, – 
certified in some fashion, right? They have they have to be a certified agent. They have to go through some process. Uh, am I right there? Yeah, apparently he actually does. He is the agent for several other NFL players. See, uh, that, that surprises the shit out of me. You know what? There should be, a, and I'm going to go off on a spiel here, a very, very short one, less than a minute. How about two sentences? There should definitely be uh, some rules for, for and some guidelines for MMA agents as well that fit that criteria, that fit the same criteria as the, as the NFL. Because let's face it, uh, there's a lot of agents, and, and, and we all know who I'm talking about here, that take great advantage of their athletes and, and that do them no services uh, by some of their own actions, you know, and, and some of their own interviews. It, it's just appalling. Can I, can I just point out that this makes zero fucking sense? Like oh, The diluted sample defense? Yeah, because if you, test, if, if you test positive for marijuana, and you, your defense is your sample was diluted. You would have tested positive for less marijuana than if your sample <laughs> wasn't diluted. Your sample being Wait, diluted Ian, are you, are you means also... there's too much water in it. It doesn't mean there's too much weed in it. Ian, that's not. That's not. Are you also saying that perhaps there should be an IQ exam as well <laughs> as a certification for these managers? Is the, is the... It's the dumbest argument I've ever heard. I know I tested positive for weed, but if I hadn't been drinking so much water, I would have tested positive for even more weed, so the drug test doesn't count? What? What? Like, maybe someone's got it wrong. Maybe he didn't actually test positive for marijuana, and he just gave a sample that was too diluted, but that doesn't count as a positive test. That's not a failure. That that, that just means you have to give a, another sample. It's an atypical result, not an adverse analytical finding. So... Either Malky Kawa is even dumber than I thought and his defense for his client testing positive for marijuana is, oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you, you didn't catch him when he was less hydrated or he'd have been even higher. The fuck, man? Jesus Christ, the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my entire fucking life. Well, well the problem for, uh, for Callaway here is that a diluted sample in the NFL still counts as a positive test. So Wait, Kawa's defense, really? yes, seriously, yes. I'm dead serious. What? So, yep. So it was. It, is, so it's possible it, it wasn't a test for marijuana, and he literally just gave a a test with, with specific gravity that was that was overhydrated. That's the unless like that was way over, unless that was like way over like one point oh three or some shit. That's ridiculous that that counts a positive test. That's insane. Yep. Well, you know what? Last year there was another NFL player named Ruben Foster who also had a positive first positive test for a diluted urine sample and his agent is Malkikawa and Ruben Foster is currently under investigation for uh, domestic violence so that's why his future in the NFL is in jeopardy so Malkikawa's too (laughs) yep it is just destiny that Malkikawa is going to deal with the bad boys and drug test failures in both MMA and the NFL it is it's it's almost like there's a magnet on his forehead that just says, I'm going to pull in all of the bad stuff. Can, can someone break down for me what a diluted sample is? Because it seems like this is a term that's uh, that's kind of synonymous over there in the NFL with drug testing. What is a diluted sample for, for myself and for those out there that might be asking the same thing? So the your urine test will come back with something that's called a specific gravity. And specific gravity is a ratio comparing the density of your urine to the density of water. 
Um, now, normally your urine will be slightly denser than water because it has more solutes in it. It has more salts and, and, and stuff like that in it. So, uh, But your urine can just be that you've been drinking plenty of water, you don't, you, your kidneys haven't been excreting, uh, haven't been processing a whole bunch of stuff. You can have a, a normal specific gravity of around 1.0, which means your urine is the, the same, roughly has the same amount of solutes as water. More commonly, it will be, you know, 1.005 to, you know, 1.030. But if, if you got up to 1.030, it means you're kind of, you're kind of dehydrated. But that shows you how, you know, tight it is, how, how, how little the difference is. That we're talking like hundreds, hundreds of a difference, like percentage points, like three percentage points is, is the, the maximum. It goes from 0% different to 3% different. So it's, it's tiny. It's a tiny amount of difference. So for them to be like, your sample was diluted, then I, I don't know what the cutoff is, but you you have a very good argument for saying, no, uh, you, you can have a normal sample that's as low as like 1.0 in, in certain circumstances. Like If they're not challenging that, they're fucking up. Because you can give a result that is very close to the result of water. Um, and unless you, your argument is that they diluted the urine with, super water that has less solutes than water somehow, then I, I don't understand how you can have the argument that the urine was diluted. It, okay. it doesn't, it, it's ridiculous. So it I follows, do have something here it, it, as far as how the uh, NFL defines a, a dilute specimen. It says a urine specimen that has a specific gravity value less than 1.003 and a creatinine concentration of less than 20 milligrams per deciliter. Okay, so they, they follow standard lab values then. Okay, I do understand standard lab well, values. Well, no, because you, you can have a standard lab value below 1.003 is still, is still consistent with an actual urine sample being result, being returned. That's the thing. But you can return an actual an actual urine. Same with creatinine. You can return a sample with less than that. Well, no, what I mean um, is that they're using lab values to determine these things. I was under an impression of something entirely different. From, oh, no, uh, no. They'll, they'll, they'll be using specific gravity for sure. Like, there's no doubt about that. But the, the, you can make a very strong argument against that being a, a standard for a, a failed drug test. Okay. And it would probably hold up. Because okay. that's yeah, that you you can give samples that are that diluted naturally, with that. But the, right. the reason they have these diluted sample things, the idea is you pee in the cup and then you pour water in the cup. Because that's the more, that's what I was thinking. Okay, yeah, that's, that's where I that's was what going. That's what they're trying to. That's what they're they're essentially trying to avoid because the more dilute your sample is, the harder it is to detect anything in it. Right. But he might just have been drinking a lot of fucking water. Like, yeah, that's the thing, and you can still give a result from that just from drinking a lot of water. You can't be like you're banned for drinking water. Also, that other Mexican guy's banned for eating meat. Like, there's a reason that competent drug testing agencies don't ban people for that. It's because it's fucking dumb. Yeah. Like, what I was saying was they were using lab values to determine the diluted yeah. sample. I'm over here thinking to myself, I, I wasn't thinking somebody was just pounding a bunch of water. I'm over here thinking somebody's pouring water in this, right? Uh, well, that's, that's what they're trying to catch, but the, the results, like, Unless he literally gave a flat result of 1.00 and, and returned no, like basically no creatinine at all, then the, it could easily have just been he was very hydrated. Okay. It's very, very hard to tell, like, to, to say this wasn't natural, you know, this this wasn't just how he was naturally hydrated. It's very hard. They have a strong defense. If they get an expert, and it's not one who gets his information from bodybuilding.com like last time, if they get an actual expert <laughs> this time, Malky, if you're listening... 
they get someone who actually knows what they're fucking talking about, they could probably make a, a relatively effective defense. That being said, I don't know what the NFL's appeal process and stuff is like for this. It could be hot fucking garbage, and there might actually be no one to defend yourself to. But under a competent agency, you wouldn't get a failure for a dilute drug sample test. Hmm. Yeah. Is there any chance that he actually took weed-infused water? Because I see a lot of infused <laughs> water things at the grocery store, so we, yeah. we can't rule out weed-infused water, and that He's, could accidentally be Melky Cow's defense. He's been drinking his bong water. He didn't realize that's not what you're meant to do. He's been using the bong and then drinking it afterwards, you know, to hydrate after, after doing the weed. Maybe it's possible. <laughs> I just threw up a little in my mouth, the thought of that. <laughs> God, the smell. Jesus Christ, that's disgusting. Anyway, Avion I, I, uh, has never tasted better. A- anyway, I, I wouldn't know about those things. <laughs> of course not. Steffi would never smoke weed. Steffi would never commit any crime. Unlike Greg Hardy, the NFL player who beat his wife. Uh, he is going to now get the chance to beat people who aren't his wife in Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender Series this summer, where he has been signed up to compete under the auspices of, of Dana White's Contender Series as an MMA fighter against other men, presumably, this time. What do you guys think about this? I think it's garbage, especially since Dana White came out and said uh, domestic abusers won't be allowed anywhere near the UFC. You fucking liar. That's fucking illegal. <laughs> it's, it's probably not, but I'm just going with Dana White's own words. But still, he's fucking lying. I hate this example that they're setting. They're letting a guy that beat the brakes off of his wife or significant other, whatever she was, those bruises on her back and her arms, that is terrible. How do you let somebody into your organization with that kind of rap sheet? Ugh, disgusting. Yeah, it was uh, his, his ex-girlfriend. And see, it, the interesting thing here is that technically the charges were dismissed and expunged from his record. I believe that that's some weird state law in, in uh, North Carolina because uh, the victim of failed to appear in court for a jury trial. So that, I believe, has some sort of similarity uh, as to Tiago Silva, the, 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 the UFC fighter. But still, at the time, he was found guilty of assaulting a female and, and making communicating threats. So those are misdemeanors. But Deadspin had the, the, the photos of, of his ex-girlfriend's injuries, and there were some other gruesome details in there. So, yeah, Greg Hardy being within touching distance of the UFC is depressingly predictable because you know that the UFC realizes the heavyweight division isn't any good, but people know that NF- ex-NFL athlete and somebody as good as Hardy was at his craft, even if he's a, a re- awful human being, they're going to promote him as, hey, some guys need second chances. It's interesting which guys in the UFC get second chances and which guys <laughs> do not because Abel Trujillo is still on the UFC roster, but you know Will Chope, they couldn't... They, they, cut him as soon as that Max Holloway fight was done. So, what yeah, about, the, the, the um, UFC, Anthony Johnson? you can guarantee. Anthony who? Johnson? Anthony Johnson, yeah. Yeah, he had multiple uh, issues, and he was he was retained on the roster, too. They hired Cody East and let him fight one or two times before they got rid of him? Oh, so, yes, Cody East, I remember that. Well, the one thing you can guarantee with the UFC is they are consistently inconsistent, and their zero-tolerance policy only works as zero tolerance until they can realize that somebody might be able to sell them some pay-per-views. So here's um here's what happened with the the Greg Hardy situation for those wondering. Greg Hardy was convicted in a bench trial. A bench trial is a trial held before a judge. And the judge convicted him of, of domestic abuse. A few months later, 
um, Hardy asked for a jury trial and an appeal, which is his right. Now, when he asked for this jury trial, for some reason, the prosecutors couldn't get a hold of his wife anymore, or his ex-girlfriend anymore to prosecute him in the jury trial. And the prosecutors said they had reliable information that his ex-girlfriend and Hardy had reached a civil settlement and that she intentionally made herself unavailable to the state. So what it looks like happened here is he was convicted and then he paid his ex-girlfriend a lot of money, appealed, and his ex-girlfriend, having received a lot of money, decided not to cooperate with the prosecutors, which meant they had to throw the case out. That's what happened. So for those for those thinking, oh, there was a retrial and, you know, she was lying and that's why she didn't show up or, you know, he was actually innocent. But he was convicted. And then, coincidentally, when he appealed, he had just so happened to give her a bunch of money and she just so happened to not answer the phone to turn up for the and in, in, in participate in the jury trial against them, which resulted in the case being dismissed. Yeah. So draw your own conclusions from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all we can hope for is that Jeremiah Sales, the guy that Greg Hardy is fighting, uh, it's not Jeremiah, uh, Brandon Sales, the guy that uh, Hardy is fighting, I'm going to root for him when uh, June 12th rolls around. Me too. I'm definitely going to go to the Brandon Sales. I'll pick up a bunch of Brandons myself. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so one other thing happening in Dana White's Season at Contender Series this summer, which is much better news, is Nick Newell is getting a chance to compete. Now, Nick Newell should just be going straight into the UFC. He's good enough. But instead, Dana White's going to put him on the, the Snoop Dogg show. And uh, Nick Newell's going to get to fight for the D-O-double-G, the dog father himself. What do you guys think about this? I'm super stoked about this. I couldn't be happier. I remember like four or five years ago when Dana said, absolutely no way Nick Newell's fighting under the UFC octagon. Guess what? Also, no women will ever compete, and we're definitely not for sale. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, Jeremy Stevens is totally fighting tonight. <laughs> He's not in jail. What are you guys talking about? You can't even spell jail. <laughs> but yeah, I'm I'm super stoked. Uh, this is fantastic news. Yeah, I, I'm glad he's at least getting a shot to get to get into the UFC. Um, we'll see how he's, he's going to be uh, booked. I don't see an opponent listed yet, but it's just going to be something that happens in the summer. The only discouraging thing I, I read is that Ali ended up being instrumental in, in getting that deal to happen. I, I saw somebody uh, tweet the other day, or it might have been today, I think it might be uh, Jed Goodman, that Ali has got roughly 8% of the entire UFC roster uh, under his management. So, yeah, that that is something to behold. And uh, I got a feeling there's a lot more to it than we care to know. Now, Nick Newell, if he wins, presumably, he'll and wins impressively, presumably he'll get a UFC contract. It's a good story. I think this is a good use of Contender Series. And instead of just com- continuing this Ultimate Fighter nonsense, I wish they would make Contender Series you know, like a fully-fledged thing uh, on TV, because I would watch that. You can build up a good story out of it. And Nick Newell potentially getting to the UFC through a contender series would be a fantastic story. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, yeah, before we forget, Lagoy Ivanov, who is a former Bellator champion and was also a World Series of Fighting, he's also been signed to the UFC. He's, going, he's not going to contender series, obviously. He's going straight to the UFC heavyweight division. And Ivanov, you know, he, he, we haven't heard about him in a while, but he is a talented fighter, and I'm glad that the UFC he, uh, is doing something. He did a million in Sambo a few years mm-hmm. back. So. 
Yeah, so uh, I'm interested to see how he gets booked because, Matt, the heavyweight division needs any sort of talent they can get. And why Bellator is getting rid of Ivanov and, and having middleweights fight in the heavyweight Grand Prix is beyond me. He'll get a very favorable booking because we all know who his manager is. <laughs> oh, who, who, who might that be? I, I, I'm, I'm not aware. <laughs> his name rhymes with Schmali. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah. I think yeah. his name rhymes with uh, was it Schmali Abed disease. Some, right? Uh, definitely a disease. Schmali Abed disease. I think it rhymes with that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is uh, it's a good signing. Um, I've been, I mean, I hesitate to come a prospect. He's probably like 38 years old or some shit. I've not even checked. But um, he's a competent fighter. And at heavyweight, that basically means he's going to be top five. Merely, m- merely being alive and 200 plus pounds makes you a ranked UFC heavyweight. Literally, if you've got less than 15% body fat and you're over six feet tall, you're already on the UFC's heavyweight rankings, whether you've fought or trained or anything. Like if you fulfill those two conditions, you're probably ranked somewhere in the top 500 heavyweight fighters in the world. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, speaking of heavyweights, the Ultimate Fighter, and of course, I just brought up Tough. It's still going to exist for another season, unfortunately. But this is an interesting development. Heavyweights are going to get tryouts, um, but women's featherweights are also invited. Now, there is no guarantee that both weight classes make the show itself. Um, it, it could just be heavyweight only or women's featherweight only or maybe we end up seeing a, a combination of the two but this is the first time that the UFC might actually build a women's featherweight division because the women's featherweight roster literally does not have its own rankings it is Chris Cyborg Yana Kunitskaya is moving down so it leaves you with what Megan Anderson and end of list maybe Holly Holm three fighters so it, what do you guys think about tough having potentially having women's featherweights uh, as uh, an entire season First of all, they just put out the call. That's all they did. They put out the call for feather, women's featherweights and men's heavyweights to come and try out. Um, I like the idea. I just, in theory, it's fantastic. I just don't think it's going to pan out very well because you know what? How many women's featherweights do you know of outside of what uh, of the couple that Bellator has? And how many does Invicta have? Like three? Is, are there ten women's featherweights out there to even make five fights to 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 break down there's not really i mean i can't imagine them having much success with this at all i wish they would just kill off tough that's what they need to do they just need to kill it and like mookie pointed out today and i've pointed out several times the contender series should be the one to take over that 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 time slot that that uh production team that they have should put all of their energies into the contender series it's much more compelling the fights are better and you don't have uh manufactured drama and 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 stale premise to deal with that i mean fuck we're in 20 season 27 of the ultimate fighter that's about 20 seasons too many in my opinion yeah this it, it can just go down now they'll probably find 145 pound women because this is the sort of thing that will encourage fighters who have been amateurs or who have just been training um, and have only you know, got a couple of professional fights or a few, few professional fights, th- this is their chance to shine. Uh, this is one of these divisions, unlike most, where they're not going to go in there against you know, amazing competition for the most part. So they've actually got a, a decent shot of getting into the UFC this week. Unlike, you know, it's like season one of Tough all over again. Where you get guys who, who were just on the regional circuit fighting part-time and stuff and 
unlike recent seasons where they're taking guys who get you know 10 15 professional fights you're probably going to find that you're finding women who got three and four and and that, that's not necessarily a bad thing fresh blood fresh faces since chris cyborg signed with the ufc invicta's only run nine featherweight fights over the last two years so yeah um the, the how the many thing of is, those nine if, fights feature one uh, feature a same fighter in them? You know, yeah, there, I, I, there's not yeah, eighteen different women multiple. there. Yeah, it's probably not. I see Felicia Spencer, and, and I think Megan Anderson might be on this list as well. But uh, there's Pam Sorison against uh, Gomez, and uh, I mean, it's just a case where if they're going to build a women's featherweight division, it's kind of like Chris Cyborg's successor because n- pretty much no way. That any of the 16 women, supposedly, if they do have a season of tough surrounding women's featherweights, if they have 16 fighters on there, I'm going to guarantee you that none of those 16 has a hope in hell of beating Chris Cyborg within a year. So they have to be planning long term and, and, and finding that, that next contender down the line and, and build them up. But uh, I would rather see that than heavyweights because the last time we had uh, a season of heavyweights on the Ultimate Fighter was what, the tough 10 with, with, uh, Schoonover and, and Kimbo and Roy Nelson and Shabs. <laughs> yeah. <titties. laughs> oh, sorry. Oh my goodness. <laughs> sorry. Rampage in the titties. Exactly. So yeah, uh, if they can scrounge up enough women's featherweights that are good enough to make the Ultimate Fighter, then fair play. But you know, this is also a show that's doing worse ratings than infomercials. It the last episode. Did 185,000 viewers. Wow, it went down. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. And even the plus the three DVR for last week was 295,000. Oh so my it's God. not clearing 300,000. That is just, oh my God. How do they look at those numbers and say, let's do another season? <laughs> they might be contractually obligated with Fox, and I would hope yeah. that the next TV deal, that this one is, is the last one, and we can move on to something that improves the UFC product. Because this is just, it, it's just there. Nobody cares anymore. We don't do the weekly show threads anymore. Nobody cares about tough. And unfortunately, this is probably not a good sign about Stipe and Daniel's drawing power either uh, for their super fight. They're going to have to promote that actual fight instead of, hey, these guys are coaches on tough. That's not good enough. Nobody's watching. They need to um, get the guys back in there that piss on each other's food yes. and punch, you know, punch out limo windows and get shit-faced drunk and fight out there by the pool and just do rowdy shit like that it needs to be the real world you know but but for mma all over again and that that's pretty much what our fan base deserves but yep ultimate fighter uh the tryouts are are gonna happen soon and then i think the new season starts in september then you get the season finale hopefully the series finale in december now uh we'll wrap things up with our predictions uh, recap from last week and also we're picking two bellator fights this week because even though it's fedor versus mir in the main event the rest of this card is not very good for a supposed tentpole event now first things first usc atlantic city we all went five and two pretty good uh, considering some of the results that happened throughout the night uh first off ryan lafleur beat ryan uh ryan lafleur did not fight ryan garcia ryan lafleur fought alex garcia won a decision steffi uh you picked garcia nobody won this fight it was dreadful it is one of it's to me it's the worst fight of the year stop putting ryan lafleur on tv next up did anybody think that david branch would be the one to knock tiago oh santos out goodness. with boxing I what in the world didn't. happened but we have to give, you know, we have to give David Branch props because that dude's been grinding along for 
a long, long time. Yeah, he, he has clearly improved. And uh, Santos, well, that probably puts a cap on his ceiling because he's not necessarily iron-chinned. And David Branch showing off those hands. I wouldn't be against David Branch fighting Chris Weidman next, by the way. I, I think that might I be would, a difficult I would. You know what? I don't want to see that. <laughs> I still like Chris Weidman. I'm sorry. I would accept Chris Weidman just fighting, period, because he's just been so inactive. It's it's <laughs> unfortunate. Um, moving on, yeah, I, I hate to bring it up, but Dan Hooker, the, the dude is, is really talented with those those knees because he, he knocked out Ross Pearson with that. Now he's knocked out Jim Miller. And the microwaved Brock Lesnar, who was refereeing, was somewhere on the other side of the state because that yeah. stoppage was late. Super I wish Hooker late. didn't throw that punch, too. Super, super late. And you know what? Um, I have to uh, do a 21-gun salute on, on Jim Miller there because uh, that the competitive edge there is gone. And I hate seeing him take losses like this. I hate it. It's killing me. I'm turning into Mookie here, calling for retirements. But, man, I don't want to see yeah. Jim Miller take that kind of damage anymore. Yeah. No. I mean, Hooker was most likely going to win that fight. I just wish they, if they were going to have him fight New Jersey, couldn't they pick a, a softer opponent? Um, but, you know, he, he's supposedly going to fight in July, uh, is Jim Miller. So th that seems like a quick turnaround given the knockout. But, you know, Frankie Edgar just came off at his own quick turnaround and he won. Um, Aljamain Sterling had, to me, one of the best performances yes. of the night. Steffi, you picked it correctly. Beat Brett Johns. And then a fight happened in the crowd during the interview. Um, so... <laughs> You know, the the typical New Jersey Saturday night guys getting drunk and just having random fights. But yeah, Sterling and his hands looked a lot better than they had in previous fights. He was more confident throwing combinations and he had John's tagged uh, several times. So, but that's he good also for took some too, though. That's the thing. He fucking fights with his hands down a lot, like racing in with his chin. And he took, he got tagged a few times there that had me worried. Yeah. Uh, Justin Willis beat Chase Sherman by unanimous decision. The first round was, was pretty exciting. Chase Sherman's got a hell of a chin. And then the last two rounds were, uh, they existed. Um, Chase Sherman, I think I said it last week, he is like if you made Justin Gaethje substantially worse at fighting and then stuck him at heavyweight because he has some of the worst striking defense I've ever seen at a UFC level. Um, Frankie Edgar went over Cub Swanson and an emotional one for him given the recent passings of his father and grandfather. Um, Cub Swanson didn't really good in that fight he was tentative all the way and it was kind of disappointing to see um and then kevin lee beat the shit out of edson barboza mm -hmm. for like 95 percent of that fight that and then fight could have been 5%. stopped way early mm -hmm. the corner could have thrown in the towel i hate this you know um edson barboza is a fucking warrior i don't want to see that shit i want to see edson barboza's corner very intelligently threw in the towel when their fighter took so much damage they just got tired of watching it yeah. Well, the thing is, the immediate justification for not throwing in the towel is the fact that he just about had Lee knocked out in that third round. And I will give Barboza this. For somebody who's taken as much punishment as he has over these last two fights, I've never seen anybody get destroyed like that and still throw kicks at full power. Like, he, he is amazing with that. But seriously, these are career-altering beatings he's taken mm -hmm. against Habib and now Kevin Lee. And Kevin Lee, that's one of his best performances. I, I kind of want to see Kevin Lee fight Habib over Me Justin too. Poirier. Me too. But there's one problem. He's got to make weight. He, he had the staph infection two fights ago and missed weight the first time. And then he missed his weight this last time. So something tells me 165 might be his weight class. So create 165 or 
make weight this next time and fight Khabib. Ian? Yep. So I agree with that 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So standings are unchanged. Ian in first, I'm in second, Steffi's in third. Now we go to Bellator 198 in Rosemont, Illinois. And it was actually just revealed by Scott Coker that Fedor versus Frank Mir is a... Uh, oh, sorry, this is this is actually part of the heavyweight Grand Prix. He just revealed that Krokop versus Roy Nelson of Bellator 200 is a tournament alternate fight. So Roy Nelson, who was already eliminated, could be right back into the tournament with a win and an injury. Of course. Oh, Bellator. He, of course they did that. Didn't yep. they do this like with their light heavyweight tournament a while back? Yeah, and then uh, Francis Carmar almost ended up winning the whole thing, but Phil Davis knocked him out of yeah. all people. <laughs> the vaunted hand speed and striking of Phil Davis. Um, so before we get to Fedor versus Mir, uh, the co-main event is a, a friend of the show, Sam mm-hmm. Cecilia, against Emmanuel Sanchez. That's actually a good fight. It sure is, and I, I talked to Sam Cecilia day before yesterday, and this is, this is going to be frustrating, but... Uh, I guess intelligent all at the same time. Did y'all know Sam Cecilia had to take a take a job? He's now swinging a hammer. He's doing construction to to keep his ends met when he's not being fought for nine months or so. Um, anyways, as much as I love Sam Cecilia, Sanchez is custom cut to beat him though. Um, and Sanchez is on some like four or five fight streak. He's only lost one time since he's been. Three fight streak, but the one loss in like the past three years yeah. was a split. So yeah, he. Uh, but Sanchez is custom built to beat Cecilia, um, and so as much as it pains me to do this, I, I have to pick Sanchez here. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna do the same. Um, it doesn't help that Cecilia isn't able to focus fully on fighting and chain full time either. But Sanchez is a killer. He's he's lost three times in his entire career. First one was like a year into his career. We can ignore that. Second one was a unanimous decision loss to Pat Curran in 2015. No shame in that. Pat Curran's one of the absolute best featherweights of, of all time, especially outside of the UFC. Uh, and then a split decision to Daniel Vigil, which was a very close fight um, back in 2016. Uh, and that time he's beat, in, in the last three years even, he's beat Daniel Strauss, great fighter, Marcus Galvao, great fighter, Car Canyon, very good fighter, Daniel Pineda, very good fighter, Justin, Karate Kid, Anderson Silva, next guy, Lawrence from Ultimate Fire, beat him comfortably as well. So, yeah, he's, he's been beating strong guys, good fighters, and uh, the guys he's been beating are, are on par with, with Sam Cecilia, or maybe even have slightly better records than Sam Cecilia, even when Sam was training full-time. So, I'm picking Sanchez here, too. Yeah, I'm picking Emmanuel Sanchez. I like Sam Cecilia a lot. I mean, beating Marcos Galvao is a major uh, accomplishment for him. But Sanchez, coming off the, it's a while ago, but coming off the win over Daniel Strauss, and hopefully Strauss is still recovering after the, the motorcycle accident. But Daniel Strauss is a damn good fighter. And Sanchez, for, for Sanchez to submit him, that's a big deal. Um, so I'm picking Emmanuel Sanchez. He's a more well-rounded fighter, and, and I think he's going to... Uh, get a comfortable decision over Cecilia. So we're all picking Sanchez over Cecilia. Obviously, you can't discount Sam's power. But now we get to the main event of the evening. Oh, boy. Uh, Fedor Emelianenko against Frank Mir in 2018. You know why? Because I I think that his submission skills are better than Fedor's. Um, And I just think that Fedor's declined so much. They're both in decline, but I feel like Fedor's much more declined. uh, so I'm going to take the least declined of the two, and I'm going to take Frank Mir here. 
I actually slightly lean towards Frank Mir, but I, I think it, it's there's also the potential for Fielder to knock him out until I'm some good ground and pound on him. Um, so just to split a difference with Steffi, I'm going to go Fielder. But if Steffi had picked Fielder, I would have picked Mir. I, I think <laughs> it's that close. How the fuck can I analyze this properly? It is 2018 Fedor against a Frank Mir who was woefully out of shape a few months ago and hasn't fought for two years. So, yeah, it's a total toss-up for me. I wouldn't be surprised with any outcome. But, yeah, Frank Mir takes a lot of punches, and Fedor at least still has power. The double knockdown of Mitrion, he, he got knocked out, but he knocked down Mitrion. That's the first place. So, yeah, screw it. If, if Mir taps out Fedor, I'll be really, really sad because then he'll have tapped out Fedor and Big Nog. But I will trust Fedor to get a knockout win over Frank Mir. And I believe this means he would fight Chael Sonnen in the semifinal. <laughs> and if Chael beats Fedor, I will. I would take I Chael to beat Fedor. You know what? Chael out. Oh, yeah. You yeah know, I, let me tell you why. Have you been drinking bong water? No. Let me tell you why. That fight with Rampage, Chael outworked the shit out of Rampage. He actually hit him a couple of times. I... I I'm assuming maybe lucky punches. I don't know, but he hit him a couple of times that staggered him a little. Fedor's chin is so eroded at this point that what's his face? What's the the middleweight that moved up to Maldabobble? Maldabobble. Maldabobble gave him a fucking shitload of trouble. Maldabobble beat him, and Fedor got gifted the decision. Y'all need to go back to that fight before you say that he's going to beat Mir. And I think Chael still has enough to just outwork him. That's all that he has to do. That's why yeah. I say that. You're, tra- you're, you're talking about Chael at work in Rampage. I outworked Rampage when I walked downstairs I still and picked think, up a pack of chips earlier. I still think that Chael beats Fedor. I can't say why. I just do. And my heavyweight record of picking is better than y'all's. Yep. Okay, but Chael isn't a heavyweight. So, but he is. It, but he is, right. he is now. for this tournament. He is, sure is, is Chael now. Go- is Chael going to knock out Fyodor? No. No. Fyodor's no. chin isn't so gone that Chael can knock him out. I okay. don't say Ryan that, though. I don't say that. I just can say he, that... though? Can he? No, uh, I don't say How many that. guys have we seen control Fyodor from top position? I don't think that... Ever. Ever. Oh. Ever. First of all, that that was you're looking at old Fedor. No, I mean, even in the past five years. How many guys have we ever seen being able to keep Fyodor down? Like his up. his transition, even he couldn't really do it. Fyodor's transition game is ridiculous. Like in Chael, is as good as he is, he's not going to do damage on the ground. I'm and the t- second he leaves the slightest opening, Fyodor's up. And Chael leaves openings everywhere. Like that's how he gets tapped out every ten seconds. I I take Chael in that fight just by outworking, uh, just by decision. I I think I think Mir's going to beat Fyodor. I think you're right. I do. Um, I'm I'm just picking the opposite. Because that's what we do with the Wonder Twins. Exactly. But I I wouldn't hesitate to pick Fyodor over Chael. Like I wouldn't I, I wouldn't even blink. God, I'm, I I'm, I'm totally. If that fight happens, I'm totally picking Chael just to shake it up. And because I think that Chael can outwork him to a decision. I did not say he would finish him in any way, shape, or form. But I do. I think mean, over three rounds, maybe. Yeah. But, well, maybe. That, uh, are they only going to yeah, fight one round? <laughs> so I wish I, they would only fight one round. But that's the thing. I think that Chael could outwork Fedor to a decision. I do. And that's why I would pick him. Not because I think he would finish him anywhere on the floor, on the feet, nothing. But I do think that he could he could beat him by a decision. And that's why I would pick him. Because Chael has grown into that decisioner mode. And I think he would do it. I mean, do you think Fyodor's declined more than Tito Ortiz? Um, yeah. 
Really? Yep. Really? 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 Because Tio tapped Chill out without even trying. Mm. Tio Ortiz tapped Chill Sonnen out, but you don't think Fyodor can? Nope. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if Mir would have if Mir would have fight Chael, we'd all agree Mir by submission in a few minutes, yes, right? Yes, I would. I would say that that Styles makes makes fights thing absolutely applies. I really think that. Do you yep. think Tito is a better submission grappler than Fyodor? No, I don't. I just think that Tito was kryptonite for Chael. I don't know why, but I don't think that that if you put uh, Fedor and Tito in there, I would pick Fedor to beat Tito. But I'm not picking Vador to beat Chael because I think Chael decisions him. That's all I'm I saying. Just, I just don't see how you don't think Fedor just taps Chael out I don't the think so. I think that Chael decisions him. I do. That's all I'm saying here. I mean, This, this is a depressing conversation. If that you had Chael fight his own shadow, I think he'd find a way to tap out his own shadow 50% <laughs> of the time. So, <laughs> so uh, to recap the picks... Steffi is the only one picking Mir over Fedor, and then we're unanimous on Sanchez. Some breaking news before we go. Damian Maya will replace Santiago. Wait, are Pontenipio. you picking Fedor as well? Yeah, I'm picking Fedor. Oh, I'm, I'm picking Mir then. I was, I, was put, I was putting the difference because I thought you were going to go Mir as well. I'm, pe- I'm picking Mir. Mir's All right, so noted. So I'm, I'm on my own picking Fedor, and yeah. Ian and Steffi are picking Mir. So the breaking news is, of course, Santiago Pontenibio out of the fight with Kamaru Usman at UFC uh, Chile. Damian Maya will be the replacement. So Maya against Usman on May nineteenth, and that's a good fight. I think a one. I think yep. this is one Usman could win. I... Yeah, it's a tough test. That's him. He's, he's moving up. He's fighting one of the big boys now. Well, not big in size, but big in skill. Good fight. And I think that Usman's going to destroy him. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I see happening is like Usman beating him up on the feet, and then you know going for some ground and pound, and then Maya going surprise, motherfucker. Just like Kim wearing his arm off or something, I can honestly see that happening. Nah, I maybe think not. Usman's too strong a wrestler. Um, I just think that he just mauls Maya. If he mauls him on the ground, I will be fucking impressed. I think That's not easy to do. I'll be impressed if he pulls off. He mauls him. Mauls him. <laughs> well, we'll see. Um, hopefully, you guys in, enjoyed the show. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed the mauling that's going to happen apparently in UFC Chile and hopefully you enjoyed Mickey mauling the English language all through today's, today's show. <laughs> if you guys want to hear any more from us, you can catch us on Twitter. Myself, I ain't kid. Stay fair, cooking and any Mickey at Mickey Alexander. You can see all of our writing on bodyelbow.com as well. Uh, you can also follow the show on Twitter at 3 Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com slash 3 Pod. You can find all of the shows, past and present and future, at soundcloud.com slash MMA-Nation. Hopefully you guys enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed recording the show for you, and we'll catch you next week. Peace. And welcome to episode 191 of the Three Amigos podcast, presented to you by BloodyElbow.com. I am your host, Mookie Alexander, joined by the unified, undisputed champion of podcasting, Steffi Haynes, and the interim, undisputed, interim, undisputed, interim champion of podcasting, <laughs> Ian Kitt. Uh, this week, we will be talking, of course, about UFC interim title craziness, as well as Conor McGregor's case resolution, Daniel Cormier's awful, awful-looking new Reebok shirts, Big fight announcements and a whole lot more. But first, how are you guys? 
I am doing much better now. I uh, came in here about 15 minutes ago and was ready to pull my hair out because I have a crazy dog. But um, between you and Ian, Ian, you're a smart man. I think I have <laughs> uh, got my problems all worked out. <laughs> I'm good. Uh an interesting event this week. We had a terrible event last week. God knows I'm hoping this one's better because <laughs> last week's is fucking awful. Got an interesting show ahead as well that my photo. Yep, uh, I'm doing okay. We're in the middle of a heat wave up here, and uh, it's going to be 100 on Sunday, which is very rare for this region. Um, so it's just nothing but fans and me not wearing not wearing a shirt. Not going to bother with any of that. Um, but yes. <laughs> Ladies, calm yourselves. <laughs> calm yourselves, everybody. Um, but yes, the UFC Hamburg, the less said about that event, the better. I mean, we will talk about it at the very end of the show, but like, 10 seconds worth because that that car dragged on for 15 hours that that's the type of show that i can understand drains people's interest in the ufc mm -hmm. i mean is it, running that many events that look like that would make you just withdraw from the other shows and geez that i felt like that car was never going to end until anthony smith did what he had to do but anyway um let's get to the big news of the week which is conor mcgregor's court case it is complete as of thursday morning in new york he pled guilty to disorderly conduct all the other felony charges have been dropped so he will not have a criminal record and uh, as part of his plea deal he only needs to do five days of community service and attend one to three days of anger management evaluation and uh, by the way, the, the, there were some orders of protection issued, so that means that he is not to be near Ray Bork or Michael Chiesa until July of 2020. Um, McGregor said in a short statement, I just want to say I'm thankful to the DA and the judge for allowing me to move forward. Um, that's pretty much all he said. And then he smashed upwards of 40 to 50 MTA buses at the Port Authority. Um, anyway, his manager indicated that they are close to a new deal with UFC. The target date for a fight with Habib is October 6th. But of course, that is all, you know, it's all dependent on whether the UFC gives McGregor what he wants and McGregor is satisfied with uh, the contract terms. So now that the bus attack stuff is done and, and all of that other stuff is squared away, how are we thinking about uh, McGregor's future and whether or not he's actually going to be fighting in the octagon in 2018? I, I think that uh, we will see him. I, I don't know if it's going to be in October. I, I, I think that's a little soon, and I think that negotiations will, will likely be uh, a lot longer than it would take to get an October fight down in, in Pat. Um, as far as his his judgment today, it seems about right for a celebrity. If it was a normal, regular, everyday average Joe, I, I doubt that they would see just five days of community service and a disorderly conduct charge. But, you know, uh, all power to those that ha can afford good attorneys and things like that. And um, I don't see any problem with it. And, and the protective orders, uh, I know people are going to be like, oh, what a bitch, what a bitch. That's probably because they have to file those to look good for their independent uh, lawsuits that they're probably launching. I, I do believe Kiesa said he was launching a lawsuit. So those are probably proper steps to to follow for those lawsuits. But um, I, I won't lie. I'm, I'm happy to see this thing come to an end so we can possibly get a fight out of McGregor before the year is out, though. So that's that. I think it's kind of ridiculous to the court to punish Michael Chiesa, though, by basically forbidding him from getting a UFC title shot until 2021. <laughs> 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 it's kind of fucked up, right? But, uh, I mean... It, 
if we're being honest, um, community service and paying restitution for something like this is is how I think most mm-hmm. normal people would think this should be handled. Like, it's not always how it is handled because people get screwed by the justice system. Mm-hmm. But throwing something at a bus, wrecking the bus, scaring people and and, and causing minor injuries, pay the medical bills, pay some damages um, for any lost income, pay damages for emotional distress, pay to fix the bus, and then have a punishment at community service and, and some counselling to ensure it doesn't happen again. I think that's fair enough. I think most people would agree that's fair enough. Um, if Conor McGregor was a 20-year-old black kid from New York who couldn't afford his lawyers, mm-hmm. he'd probably have spent six years locked up awaiting trial, uh, six months locked up awaiting trial for that, which is fucked up. But that's not something we should be taking out in Connor. That's something that should be taken out in the justice system. Um, uh, just because other people are treated unfairly doesn't mean everyone should be treated unfairly. It stops everyone should be treated fairly. Anyway, that's kind of getting off topic a little bit. Um, in terms of whether or not Connor's going to come back in 2018, probably. EFC could use the boost. Um, the ESPN deal doesn't kick in until next year, if I remember correctly. And they do still have to hit their targets for this fiscal year to keep the loans ticking over properly, McGregor would help them do that. I think we see McGregor come back and I think he upends the uh, the revenue sharing model for pay-per-views. I think the UFC makes an exception for Connor and rather than doing the $1.50, $2.50, $3.50 cut of pay-per-view, I think they you know, boost them up to like you know 20%, 25%, 30%, 35%, depending on sales, uh, which he'll probably be much happier with. That's my theory, anyway. How long it takes to get that sorted and get that together is another question. I think Connor's in a position now as well where he has a slightly worse hand when it comes to leverage for negotiation than he did before because of all the stuff he's been through. So where before he was pretty adamant about pushing for a, a part of the company, I think now he'll probably be willing to settle for a, a significant cut of the pay-per-view um, in comparison to what he was looking for before. You, wait, you think, think it's going to be by October, though? I'm just curious. So, uh, maybe. Um, I think what's going to happen is they're going to tentatively schedule something for October. They're going to ask his likely opponent, can you fight Connor in October? And they're going to say yes, and they're going to say start training for it. And they're going to tell Connor to start training for it, and then they're going to be negotiating the details the entire way. I think that's the way they're going to handle it. So it comes down to whether or not they can come to a final decision by probably about September. I think they'll probably be able to, because uh, that's when they're going to need to start advertising and they're going to need at least a month, a month and a half so they're going to have to have it locked down by then but I think they'll be in negotiations already I think Habib or, or Tony or you know, someone will have been contacted by this point and said hey can you be ready for October to start training just in case Well I was told that Dana White isn't even thinking about Connor right now <laughs> and that there have been no talks Dana um, White has a shrine to Connor. has you know how like <laughs> some people have got a mirror above their bed Dana's just got like a giant post of Connor with two UFC belts <laughs> Topless, sweating and glistening. I don't believe Dana goes a single day without thinking about Conor McGregor in one way or another. (laughs) And there's a strip of LED lights all around the poster for mood lighting. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) He asked for a second second copy of that sculpture that that dude from Europe... uh... (laughs) Yes, he's like, can can you make one just like that, but more like uh, Michelangelo's David? What, (laughs) you mean the pose? (laughs) No, no, just, uh, you know... I think the UFC is going to do what it can to have McGregor fight by the end of the year, whether it be this uh, event on event on October 6th or the end of year pay-per-view, the New Year's Eve show. New York might be a little bit touchy because, um, unfortunately, 
I don't know if this athletic commission is going to bother licensing McGregor because they are New York and they are quite stupid. But be that as it may, um, if the UFC doesn't get McGregor this year, you're not going to have a single pay-per-view doing above 500,000 buys in all likelihood because it doesn't look like GSP is returning. Uh, Cormier versus Miocic did 400-something thousand buys. Um, the other pay-per-views have got some issues with headlining because a lot of the champions are either injured or, or, or won't be able to defend for the rest of the year for, for various reasons. So they really need McGregor to, to hit that big that big target, you know, exceeding a million buys. A fight with Khabib would be a big deal. If they get it done, I would think it would be done within the next week, week and a half. And uh, I want to see McGregor back in the MMA cage. Uh, it, it's just been too long. I like watching him fight. All the antics I've, I've finally gotten tired of, but uh, I don't want to see him box anymore. I want to see him fight Khabib. That is a fascinating fight to me. And um, as far as financial uh, workings are concerned, I think he's in a situation where he should be wanting like $40, $50 million out of this. I mean, it, it, otherwise it would be a substantial downgrade in pay from what he made against Mayweather. So, um, yep, I, I definitely think that McGregor should find a way to negotiate a ton of money for this fight because it could do one and a half million buys or even more. And as Ian said, do more pay-per-view points. Get a higher percentage of that cut, and uh, I think he'll be satisfied. I don't think he's going to get... Um, that much. I don't think he's going to get 40 to 50 million for the simple reason that um, for the UFC to make 40 to 50 million, they'd have to do one and a half million pay per view buys um, unless they start pricing corner pay per views at $100. I think what he's more likely to be aiming for is 10 to 20. Um, I think he's going to, if he does one and a half million pay per view buys, I think he's going to be looking for realistically, he'll be looking to get a 30 to 40% cut of that. Um, so if the UFC prices the pay per view up a little bit, he, he might. You know, he might come close to that 20 million mark. More likely, he's going to be in the, the 10 to 15 million, um, which is a significant pick up from a Floyd Mayweather fight. But every fight's going to be a significant pick up from the Floyd Mayweather fight. Maybe he fights Pacquiao and does 2 million there, possibly something like that. I could see that happening, but um, I'd, I'd be interested in that. Pacquiao didn't look too bad against Matisse. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I think he's going to break Connor's ribs if it happens, but it'd be fun to watch. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be interesting to watch it'd do some pay-per-views but I think the UFC is going to force him to um, fight in the UFC before they let him do another boxing match again they've got that they'll take him to court and, and over his contract if they have to they'd probably lose but uh, it would drag out long enough that they, they Connor wouldn't benefit from, from going that route he'd be better off just fighting so I think that's that's what we'll see I think we'll see Connor in the octagon next and then maybe the boxing ring after that and uh, we'll see they if not, the UFC will do what they usually do and make a three or four interim champions <laughs> to, to fight the current interim champion to decide who gets to fight the champion interim emeritus and then the winner of that gets to fight Connor maybe um, if they can beat his Street Fighter bus stage first and, and then that'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> speaking of, of, of interim champions being stripped, uh, a lot of people are critical of uh, Ortega for saying he wouldn't even fight for an interim title, saying, well, it's basically a guarantee. It's basically almost the same thing as the title. No, it's not. And the UFC kind of just proved that by by saying they're going to strip Kobe Covington of his interim belt that he just won in June if the Tyron Woodley Darren Till fight goes ahead in September eighth. You know, White said that apparently that uh, when this fight goes ahead, as soon as the winner announced the interim belt disappears. Same thing that happened when uh, Khabib um, fought Aya Quinta and, and, and the other belt disappeared after that. So that's the situation that. Covington finds himself in, and what a shame! It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. 
as much as we dislike Colby Covington, and trust me, there are plenty of us that do, he is still a fighter with an interim belt, and the way that the UFC has stupidly structured their interim situation, that's like a number one title shot, you know? That's a number one contender title shot. If you don't have an interim belt these days, you don't get a title shot. The point I'm making here is, is that, you know, we need to get behind Colby because it's fucked up that they're going to strip him just six weeks later, you know? And he actually has an injury. And, and so that's why he's getting stripped when you've got, my goodness, I hate to point to Conor McGregor and it's, you know, but I mean, November will be two years and look how long it took them to actually strip him. The crazy part is, like, if they really wanted to get McGregor stripped, all they had to do was tell him someone had a camera nearby. <laughs> He'd done it himself. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's a very valid point. There shouldn't have been an interim title instituted in the first place. I mean, they, they put one in June less than a year after Woodley defended the title last. And now Woodley's healthy again. He's going to fight in September. They didn't need an interim title. What they're doing is... I think this is what's what's happening with the UFC having to run so many pay-per-views and having so few viable headliners because if Woodley doesn't headline that card against whomever, um, you're looking at a Nico Montano, Valentino Shevchenko pay-per-view main event. And that might basically be the all-time lowest pay-per-view uh, buy rates in the Zufa era. I mean, that might even clear 10,000 buys. So it's an interesting situation that Covington is getting stripped this way, but the best case scenario for him is that if he's ready to fight again in November, they can just have Covington fight the winner of Woodley versus Till. But I'm kind of torn on Till getting the title shot in the first place because he missed weight badly. He barely beat Wonderboy. That's a debatable decision. He's missed weight twice in his last four fights. I think they could have given this to Kamaru Usman, but it seems that the UFC pretty much hates Usman's guts. So um, if Till makes the most of the opportunity, fair play to him, but what could transpire could very easily blow up in the UFC's faces. And I suppose that with Till's weight, excuse me, with Till's history of missing weight, that's why they're not going to strip Covington until the fight actually happens. Yeah, and that's a smart move. Um, hopefully Till uh, gets in touch with um, Lockhart and Leith and, and gets them on board for this cut. It's, uh, he's got a big cut ahead of him, needs to be handled as scientifically as possible from the word goal. So I really hope that he reaches out and handles that. I don't think we've ever seen a fighter who's worked with those guys all camp miss weight. Seen fighters who contact him on Tuesday like, hey, can you help me cut 30 pounds? Seen those guys <laughs> miss weight. But I don't think we've ever seen anyone who's worked with him all camp ever miss weight. Um, and that's, that's not a coincidence. If you do everything right for the entire time, you're going to make weight. I think that's probably in Tell's best interest to do that. But we'll, we'll see how it how it turns out. I uh, I think the UFC would prefer Tell as a champion just because he's going to put on more exciting fights and he's a he's easier to sell than um Woodler Covington. As much as Covington thinks he's, you know, doing the chill sun gimmick and all the rest of it. The truth is outside the MMA bubble, even in the MMA bubble, most people are like, oh look he's trying to be chill sun and isn't that cute. And outside the MMA bubble everyone's like, Who? What? Like he don't get it at all. Um Woodley the UFC just has no idea how to mark him. Um, and that's on the UFC. Tell is easy to market. Tell is, you know, he's an explosive striker. He's a guy who will talk just the right amount of shit in just the right way. He's, he comes across as open enough and honest enough, and he's, he's enough of a company guy that the UFC trusts him. That's exactly what they're looking for. Plus, he brings his own market. 
which is the the UK market, which the UFC loves it when they have a fight where they can get an entire market behind them because it helps tremendously. And it also builds up um, storylines just by default. It's this British guy's come over, he's got the title, can the American beat him? You know, like we saw with Bisping and Hendo and all the rest of it. Is that, that brings in a, a certain amount of bias just from people's underlying sort of biases and, and, and nationalistic animosities. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure the UFC wants Tell to win. And uh, it may be better for the division if he does because Woodley is too smart to be a good champion. Woodley will do what he has to to win and will take care of himself first, which is absolutely the most intelligent route to take because the UFC aren't going to fucking do you any favours. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the best fights are happening for that title. Um, and, and there's a bit of a conflict there. So, yeah. Um, personally, I don't have a, a dog in the race. Um, I'm, I like both of these guys. But uh, if Till's champion, we get some fresher fights. We get some fights that we've not seen before. And... More often than not, they're probably going to be more exciting fights. That being said, it'll be interesting to see if Woodley takes the bait, steps up and, and strikes with Till. Because Woodley's got a fucking hammer. And although Till's got a solid chin, if we see Woodley knock Till out, that could be exactly what Woodley needs to get launched back up in that stratosphere of, like, you know, wrestle boxer who knocks people the fuck out. Which, in the past, has been a very successful archetype. So, this is an interesting one for all sorts of reasons. We, we also can't ignore that there's a good chance this fight could also be just piss awful. I mean, oh, yeah. Till versus oh, Wonderboy yeah. was bad. Woodley versus Wonderboy 2 was awful. Woodley versus Till, at best, you can hope Darren Till implements what Rory McDonald did to Woodley. Uh, otherwise, you know, maybe Woodley can knock him out. Darren Till, the last time anybody actually pushed him was, was Nicholas Dalby because Till gassed out. Dalby almost finished him and it ended up being a draw. But yeah, I think they would like for uh, Darren Till to get the win because that UK market is, is really alive right now with both MMA and boxing. Whereas Woodley, he's, he speaks out against the UFC too much. And for certain title fights, you can see where the UFC would prefer one guy win over the other, especially the ones who, uh, you know, go after Dana White a little bit. But as Woodley said, it really is a shit show. So USC 228 has got Woodley versus Till and Montano versus Shevchenko. And um, yeah, that's not going to sell many pay-per-view buys either, if we're being honest. Um, moving on, there was a somewhat happy resolution to Brian Ortega's UFC 226 saga. Um, of course, he said recently that the USC was not planning on paying him a dime after he didn't accept an interim title fight versus Jeremy Stevens. And this was, of course, when Max Holloway pulled out with concussion-like symptoms. Now, the UFC's reasoning for not paying him was simply, well, I did my job, you didn't do yours, your job is to show up and fight. Um, last week, he was on Access TV uh, on one of the uh, Legacy Fighting Alliance cards, uh, as attending as a fan, of course. And they asked him about what happened since then. And he says he talked to Dana White just the other day. Everything is good between me and, me and him. He compensated me. We reached an agreement. Uh, he did not specify what that agreement was. Now, as for what's next for Ortega, he says he only wants the title, nothing else. He says, and I quote, the goal was for me to go for a title, not to fight a guy who lost to the last three guys that I finished. So it just didn't make sense to fight for anything else than a belt. Um, considering what just happened with Covington, doesn't it make it that much more justifiable not to fall into the interim title trap that they can just take it away from you? So, um, you know, what do you guys think here? Kudos to Ortega for being a smart motherfucker, you know? Everything about the UFC is wrong, wrong, wrong in, the, in their treatment of their fighters. So I'm, I'm really happy that he was able to, quote, reach an agreement, but 
by reaching that agreement, you just know he didn't get his full pay or he would have said, I got, I was fully compensated. He did not say that. And it sucks. It really sucks that he even had to go groveling and begging and, and reaching agreements and, you know, negotiating to even get that. Because when he signed his fight contract, he signed it to fight a specific guy, not a specific guy or the guy that lost to the last three guys that I beat or something along those lines. You know what I'm saying? Um, it's just fucked up. And I hate the way the UFC is doing their fighters lately over this. It's got to change. And Project Spearhead is the way to change it. Yeah, pretty much. It's, uh, it's ridiculous that this was even in question to begin with. And it's ridiculous how many people would immediately take the side of the UFC and take the side of the big corporation. Oh, he signed a contract. It's his own fault for signing a big corporation. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. No, like, these guys don't really have much of a choice this matter. They're acting like fucking the problem, the, the mistake Ortega made was forgetting to negotiate. You can't. Like, the UFC don't negotiate like that. That's not what happened here. The, the UFC has all the leverage and they know it. It's not like these guys just didn't read what they were signing and just signed it. No, it's they were told this is what you're going to sign and that's, the, or you fuck off and fight elsewhere. That's that's what happened. Like, it's, it's crazy how many people think that this was a completely willing negotiation and the fighters were happy with this clause being in there from the start. And No, that's not that's not the case in the fucking slightest, but people are goddamn dumb. I'm glad Ortega's getting something at least, um, getting some money. I uh, I still think it's bullshit that he had to fight so hard and go on this publicity speed to even get that. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah, it, it, it's good enough. Um, we'll see how quickly he gets booked again, uh, whether it be for an... Uh, a vacant title if if Holloway is out for a while and they have to strip him or if Holloway is is ready to compete by the end of the year and they just rebook that fight good on him for for waiting for the title shot instead of risking the interim title fight the fact that the UFC pushed an interim title fight on two days notice with Jeremy Stevens who's fighting this weekend so they basically had Stevens wanting to start his cut early um UFC 226 already had the main event I, I, I don't know what adding an interim title in the co-main event would have done to the pay-per-view buy rate. Mm -hmm. it, it seems like they were just pressuring Ortega into accepting accepting the fight, and Ortega took a stand, and we're seeing more and more often fighters are willing to take a stand against the UFC, uh, who, who have basically been trying to bully them into to getting what they want for years. But now he doesn't have an interim title, so now he might get cheated out of his, his, uh, his title shot. Because basically, they are making those interim titles like the number one, you know, contender title shots, you know. Uh, you, you don't really get anything unless you've got a belt now. And yeah, if you do have a belt, the right you... to be stripped of, he's lost the right to be stripped of that belt for not being able to, to, to fight in time. <laughs> exactly. As if, if, just think, if Brian Ortega had fought for the belt, he too could have had the, the, um, the privilege of being stripped on his, of his belt in October when... Um, <laughs> when he fought someone else, it would have been great. He could have came, he could have had his nice shiny belt and made all these Instagram videos of himself, and, <laughs> you know, naked women with belts, and <laughs> and he could have had all that fun. And how he's missed out on that, what a shame! And and it's it's fucked up because the UFC has these fighters in a shitty position, no matter which way you go. If you're the 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 legit number one contender without a an interim belt. How many times have we seen number one contenders pass by because somebody else had a more exciting fight? And now, how many times are we seeing uh, interim belt holders get stripped because they can't fight six weeks after they win their belt? 
Yep. The, the UFC is basically punishing fighters for their lack of uh, ability to sell pay-per-views and, and mm-hmm. stack the pay-per-views accordingly because that's what happened with, with Covington. Mm-hmm. UFC 228 is not going to sell much with Montano Shevchenko. So they wanted Covington, who just fought in June, to have a quick turnaround despite his injury, despite his surgery, to fight in September. And because he's not ready for September, they punished him. So the UFC's weak pay-per-view ends up hurting uh, rightful contenders, and that's bullshit to me. Honestly, I know that he was, uh, by all accounts, a complete fucking shithead for the fighters to deal with, but I think the biggest loss to the UFC from the sale is actually the loss of Joe Silva because their yeah. scheduling issues have magnified dramatically since he was gone. Like, he had a way of, of, of managing their schedule to avoid this stuff more often than not, and since he's been gone, it's just fucking going down in flames. No offense to Sean Shelburne or McMahon, but they're matchmakers. They're not... They, they don't... Plan, they're, they're not guys who like plan schedules out in detail in like months and years ahead. By all accounts, Joe Silva was that guy. Joe Silva was that obsessive guy who would understand and track down every goddamn motherfucking detail and, and think everything through like three moves ahead. And as most matchmakers don't do that because that's not their job. Their job is to make the best match possible. But there has to be someone, there has to be someone who has some input in the matchmaking process who is planning six and nine and 12 months ahead and, and trying to figure out, okay, are we going to have enough free bodies here that even if something goes wrong, we can fill this in and blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't seem like the UFC's got someone very good at that job handling it right now. Certainly not on the level that Joe Silva was. And Joe Silva had an iron hand with those fighters too. They they really didn't buck back against the system uh, as much as they are now. But, you know, the whole Fertitta era was just, it just seemed a lot more smooth. The machine was much more smooth running than it is now. I mean, these mutts the, uh, over at Endeavor don't seem to know what they're doing. And, man, kudos to the Fertittas for getting the fuck out of Dodge and making all that money off these dummies. But anyways, this is a good point for us to segue into our sports that can't stop no double leg segment. And Mookie's going to lead us off with sort of an MMA boxing crossover. So Mookie, take us away. Yep. We uh, talked about this on the show before that UFC veteran Steve Boss, the boss man himself, was going to take on former world boxing champion Jean Pascal in what was billed as the Canadian version of Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor, which um, just not even close. (laughs) That, that, so that, that's yeah. What you're saying is Bosco's gonna go nuts and throw a dollar to a bus in then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, to me, this speaks more to to the poor exchange rate between the U.S. and Canada. But uh, anyway, um, the, the fight itself was totally bizarre. It was on pay per view in Canada, by the way, in Quebec, seventy bucks. Which, <gasps> if, if you bought that, what in the hell are you doing? Wow. But anyway. Boss was being aggressive, as expected. He was throwing a lot of big shots. The crowd was actually chanting Boss's name. But Pascal was doing just random shit. He was throwing double punches. He was looking at the crowd while Boss was throwing at him. And in round four, uh, they did kind of like a tribute to Max Holloway and Ricardo Lamas. Like, you want to throw down? Sure, let's throw down. And they were just swinging wild hooks at each other. Um, But over the course of the fight, Pascal shockingly hit Boss with Practically every left hook he threw, and the second of two knockdowns led to the end of the fight. Um, the crowd, uh, I guess, they, they did cheer at the end, and they, they applauded Boss for his efforts. But Boss drops to one and one in his boxing career, while Pascal is thirty-three and five, and he plans to continue fighting, having retired last year before coming out of retirement to take on the ex-hockey enforcer. Is so, it boss or bossy? I always thought it was I, I, bossy. It might be bossy. I don't know if it, if it has the, uh, the the accent mark on it. If it is, it's bossy then. Oh. So unfortunately, MMA angles, hockey angles, uh, none of these things worked. <laughs> uh, bossy did not disrupt 
the sport as we know it. So maybe we can stop this MMA fighter with little boxing experience versus seasoned pro boxer stuff now because we've done it twice in two different countries and the result has been as expected. So he went from hockey to MMA to boxing, and surprise, surprise, he's not doing so well in the latter two. Um, how was he when he was a, a hockey player? Was he good? He was basically he was MMA to the NHL. An enforcer, meaning he, he was there to, to stir shit oh. up, not actually score goals, he was, but to he cause was, fights. He was goon, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Almost, yeah, exactly. He, he was like, you could take that Sean William Scott movie and it would apply <laughs> pretty goddamn well to Steve Boss. <laughs> Put him back in there in the hockey <laughs> I think it's kind of unfair to compare this to McGregor Mayweather just because McGregor was actually a talented fighter and a talented striker. And it was an interesting bit of nothing else. This fight was was a, a much smaller dude just styling. Like, if you've seen the fight or you've seen clips, it was literally just Pascal doing whatever the fuck he wanted. I don't think he threw a single straight punch. It was like he wanted to give Boss the best chance possible, so he loaded every single punch up like he was doing a fucking goddamn impression of Olenek. It was insane. Is yeah, I uh, I've watched it and it's ridiculous. He he was teeing up giant haymaker combos like four and five punches, like he was hitting a heavy bag. Boss had no idea how to respond to it. every time he tried to throw back. Pascal just wasn't there because he had no idea what angle to cut him and, and and where he was gonna where he was gonna be moving to. And that's the thing people don't realize is. There is a world of difference between the striking in boxing and the striking in, in MMA. Um, just because the the timing is different and the distance is different. And the options available to you are different. So when boxers come over to MMA, they tend to get fucked up. Because they, they don't realize that there's distances that you want to be in in boxing that you don't want to be in in MMA because it makes it far too easy to get taken down. There's distances you, you're happy to be, you know, move into the clinch to defend yourself in boxing. If you move into the clinch to defend yourself in MMA, you're in a you're in a plum clinch. You're going to get kneed in the fucking head. Like, it's, it's not your move. Like, if, if you're in trouble in MMA, you have to get a takedown. You have to get low on the guy's body and prevent him from being able to, to strike you any further. If you just go into a clinch, he's going to fuck you up. And and boxing is the same idea. Like, in MMA, you're happy to stay um, out of range and move into range to nullify the threat of a takedown. You're happy to hold your hands in certain ways to, you know, because takedowns might be coming or kicks might be coming. And it changes what distance you choose to stand at and choose to engage at. You do that in boxing, and it just means the box is going to see you coming a million miles away with a punch and just move out of the way. As, and that's exactly what we saw with Steve Boss against Pascal. And there's a million little things like that, so it's not remotely a surprise that that's how it turned out. Um, but good for um, those guys for tanking a pay-per-view, I guess. So Steve <laughs> Boss wasn't a boss. No, no, Steve Boss got bossed around. <laughs> he got embossed. Boss, even in MMA... He has some of the worst striking defense I've ever seen. And and this, like, you should not be able to get hit with wild left hooks. Like, Pascal normally does not fight that way. But he didn't give a shit. He's moving up to weight class he doesn't normally fight in, which is cruiserweight. And just landed, threw a bunch of left hands, and Boss just took him and, and, and until he couldn't take him anymore. Um, there's really only one veteran MMA fighter who has actually crossed over to boxing and done decently for, uh, for himself. His name is Ryan Fort, who used to be a World Series of Fighting. Yeah. But even then, yeah. Even then, he's kind of like, a, a, you know, middle of the pack. He's not an actual title contender or anything. So this fight never should have been sanctioned as entertaining and, and as bizarre as it was. Um, actually, the fight almost didn't happen because there was an investigation into Bossy's background that there were alleged ties to uh, organized crime in Quebec, uh, the Hells Angels. Uh, but I guess that got taken care of and they licensed him anyway. And there's your end result. Hopefully, Bossy got a decent payday out of that because um, Pascal whooped his ass. 
anyway, um, by the way, speaking of cruiserweights, you might notice on my, my uh, Twitter account that my name is now Muki Alexander Usyk. It's because of my favorite <laughs> bug-eyed Ukrainian dude who just won the World Boxing Super Series by beating Gennady Golovkin training partner Murat Gassiev in Russia. He dominated him in Russia so badly that the judges couldn't find an excuse to rob him. So Usyk, <laughs> arguably one of the top five pound-for-pound fighters in the world, and he is occasionally trained by Lomachenko's dad. So the two of them, they are something to watch. You got actual Lomachenko and supersized Lomachenko, and now Usyk wants to fight uh, Tony Bellew, and that would be a huge fight in the UK. Uh, Bellew's getting sparked, but kudos to Bellew. He always wants uh, uh, the money fights, and I think that would be uh, at least entertaining to see. Um, so Eddie Hearn, make that fight so uh, I can make money betting on Usyk. How in the hell did that get sanctioned with Steve Bossy only having one fight? Fighting a guy Because huh? he's got like 12 MMA fights and those count as combat sports. But gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Even then and, it was a bit of a mismatch, but still. And the odds were way too close. Like they, they banked on Bossy being the bigger man as like the only reason to give him a <laughs> chance. The odds were kind of like Mayweather McGregor, which is way too close. Which um, cracks me up for the record because, like, I, I've, I've spoke to, like, athletic commissions and stuff who think there's, like, this huge danger of a guy being significantly bigger in boxing. There isn't. Like, people think, like, a 10 or 15 pounds weight differential is huge. It's not. Like, I've gone through a bunch of, like, data from California and stuff. The heavier guy only wins, like, uh, 3% more often than the lighter guy, even when it's a huge weight differential. And that's an MMA where it makes it even bigger difference in boxing is uh i'm still going through the data for boxing california providing me with it I'm, I'm working on that just now but from what i can see so far there's there's no real correlation uh, it's because the the size you are doesn't there's not a whole lot of physical moving around and how hard you punch is forces mass times acceleration if you're a smaller guy you're probably going to hit a little less hard um but you can also move faster so it makes up for the the lack of mass is there's not this huge fucking advantage to being 10 or 15 pounds heavier in boxing there just there just isn't yep so ladies for pro boxers size doesn't matter now moving <laughs> on to and speaking oh, wait, of which no before before we move on i want to call you out on your fucking belly shit motherfuckers have been underrating that dude for for goddamn years he's lost twice in his entire career um, and that's including when he's been like fighting up and fighting guys that normally fight heavyweight and shit. He's uh, he lost to Adonis Stevenson back in uh, 2013. Light heavyweight. Um, yeah, light heavyweight, and he lost uh, a weird decision to Nathan Cleverly back in 2011. He's won every single other, and he avenged that loss to, to Cleverly. By the way, he's won every single other fight he's had. And remember, Adonis Stevenson, especially back then, was the shit. Adonis Stevenson's only lost one fight in his entire goddamn career, and he he's kind of slowed down his career since 2014, but back in 2013 he was just tearing through absolutely goddamn everyone. So there's not a whole lot of shame on on Bellier's record, and he's a rough fighter. He's rough around the edges, yeah, but I think he's been criminally underrated his entire career. I think I was like one of the very very few people who picked him over here both times, um, just because of how underrated he's always been. I think. Uh, I think Isaac would be the favorite, but I think that would be a closer fight than a lot of people imagine. It also depends on, on the weight class because uh, Bellew hasn't fought in cruiserweight for a while. If it's a cruiserweight, this would be the first time in the four Bell era boxing that somebody has defended their undisputed champion status. This is what Usyk did by unifying all the belts in this tournament. So if Bellew goes down to cruiserweight and fights, fights for all the belts, that's a really huge deal. Um, yes, he is underrated, but I also think there are levels to, to this game. There's washed, there's injured David Hay and late career David Hay, and then there's this 
this freak of nature. So uh, if Belia gets it, good for him. Uh, it would be a big upset if he were to get the win and certainly be a lot more respect if he were to pull off the upset, whether this is a cruiserweight or heavyweight or pasta weight. Because Usyk <laughs> said that if he wants to move up to heavyweight, I kid you not, in the post-fight interview said, I'll just eat a little more spaghetti for dinner. <laughs> I love these Ukrainian dudes. Now, um, we were talking about weight cutting and, and we've talked about MMA weight cutting problems a lot, but we're, we're going to potentially see something done on the boxing side because the Association of Boxing Commissions can unilaterally unilaterally change the rules for that sport. Uh, this weekend, there will be a vote on having a second-day weigh-in for all sanctioned title bouts, meaning the IBF, WBA, WBO, and WBC. Uh, according to the ESPN article, during the second weigh-in, which would take place the morning of the fight, athletes would not be allowed to weigh more than 10% over the contracted weight. And if an athlete failed to comply, the contest would still go on, but that athlete would be ineligible to win the championship. And additionally, offenders would forfeit at least 10% of their contracted purse, face the potential of a suspension, and uh, this part really surprised me. They would be removed from the rankings of all sanctioning bodies until they successfully make weight at a future bout. Um, there is, of course, some belief that this will lead to fighters essentially cutting twice. So uh, Andy Foster, the California State Athletic Commission executive director, says he, he understands that concern, but ultimately believes athletes will trend toward coming into fight week lighter as opposed to cutting weight that close to a contest. So if this measure passes, it will go into effect on January 1st, 2019. Um, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, th this could certainly be a, a, a sport changer as far as wanting to do something about weight cutting extremes in both MMA and boxing. But from a boxing standpoint, what do you think? I think I agree with whatever Ian says here. <laughs> uh, to me, it sounds all right, you know, but um, I, I am re reminded of a time when Ian said that he likes to see things done in, in test situations first. And I don't know if that's happened or if it could happen in this in this scenario. But uh, I'm going to agree with whatever Ian says because he's always right on this. And he is the authority <laughs> on it. So um, the one thing California's done here that I really like is they've gathered the data first. They know how much weight boxes are uh, including. They've done a study, 754 boxes. I've got the, the study in front of me. They were kind enough to, to provide it. Um, uh, 754 boxers and they checked the average weight change and stuff like this. The average weight change is significantly less than an MMA. It's only 7% versus 9.5% in MMA. But there's still a significant number of boxers doing MMA style cuts and, and you know, cutting over 10% of the body weight. And that was numbers in, I think, close to 100 fighters are doing that. Uh, 164 fighters exceeding 10%. And some of them are as high as 18.6%. So there's significant cutting going on there. The question is whether or not the uh, right course of action here is the the way they're choosing to go with it and having the second way in. It depends on what the punishment's going to end up being. Because the way California's handling in MMA works because the punishment is enough that it's not severe enough to justify a, a, a fighter choosing to do a second cut in order to avoid the punishment because that will impact the performance drastically. It's a, a sort of punishment for the future where it's like you might have to move up weight class. We're not saying you will, we're not saying you won't. There will be negotiations, but if you're over, you might have to go up. And I think that's a really smart way of doing it. I think if they're too strict about it, I think if, if the way they're going to go with this is um, have it, if you're 11% over, then you're you're getting removed from the sanctioning bodies and you're done eh, that's that that may be a little bit harsh i think 
I think that might have some unintended consequences, and I, I'm going to want to see how that turns out. But I think Foster and the team at California have got a decent head on their shoulders when it comes to this stuff and trying to predict and understand potential, you know, consequences they, they might you know predicted. I think they're they're pretty good at keeping an eye on that stuff. If there's any commission, there's like two commissions in the entire United States I trust to try something like this, and California is one of them. So from that perspective, I'm, I'm sort of willing to give Andy the, the benefit of the doubt. Is it the way I would approach it? Probably not. I think I'd probably approach it more of the MMA way of approaching it, um, to be honest, and make it a, a punishment fighters don't know if they're going to get or not, therefore making it not worth cutting back down. Uh, but we'll, we'll see. Um, I know Foster does uh, advanced concussion testing in California as well. So they'll be keeping an eye on that and seeing if the rates go up um, after this happens. And unfortunately, there isn't a good way of, of testing hydration to know um, to to make sure that fighters are, are fighting hydration. Just isn't a good way of testing that. So there'll be no way of people talk about oh they do hydration testing beforehand. We do you know we check the pee and you know we test the blood unless you're like carrying a DEXA scanner around and you've got the ability to process blood immediately and urine immediately, which is what you would have to do. You'd have to do all three to get even a remotely accurate idea of how dehydrated someone is you're not going to know. You're just not. And, and there's no way of measuring, even if you measure all that, none of that, absolutely none of that, unless you get a functional MRI machine. That's the only way you can tell if the brain ventricles have expanded because of dehydration or if they're back to normal yet. So unless they're taking these guys to an fMRI machine, there's no way to know if they're competing dehydrated. They need to be very careful of that. They need to watch out for that because anything that leads to fighters coming in dehydrated in a boxing match is a really bad idea. I'm hoping... Something they'll uh, they'll do, and I'm probably gonna um, actually hit Andy up about this and suggest this and see if they take it on board. Is they'll do what the UFC does and weigh fighters on Monday or Tuesday as well, uh, because that way you can tell if someone isn't back to that weight on fight day, they're probably still dehydrated. Like almost certainly they're still dehydrated. They should be that weight. They should be within like a pound or, or two pounds of that weight to be more alone. So hopefully they'll do that as well, because that's better than any hydration test is to figure that out and then they can see how many fighters are coming in and fighting dehydrated um so california tend to be really good about taking stuff like that on board i'll probably suggest that to them we'll see we'll see how they go from there i think that would resolve that would let them do the test and see if guys are fighting dehydrated because that really is the biggest danger you really don't want fighters competing dehydrated yeah you can definitely tell and this is timely because we, we what three weeks ago we were talking about uh that guy danny o'connor having the, the passing out uh, the eve of his fight, couldn't even make it to the weigh-ins because he spent four hours in the sauna trying to cut, what, what two pounds, and he only got like 0.2 or 0.4 ounces, or 0.4 pounds, rather. And, um, yeah, I'm definitely interested to see if this passes. I think it will. Um, the IVF already does the second-day weigh-in thing, except for unification bouts, and the WBC uh, does 30-day weight checks and seven-day weight checks. I believe MMA... Uh, or at least Andy Foster does something similar uh, as, as far as weight checks uh, at a certain checkpoint. Yeah, he does them over Skype. He uh, has the, the fighters, usually for main events, he'll have the fighters go step on the scale while filming themselves and filming the scale and uh, make sure that they're within, you know, roughly where they're supposed to be for, for the weight classifying, which is Holy a great shit, idea. Holy shit, that's fucking smart. Yep. Yeah, I, I wonder, though, what happens if there's a towel trick over Skype? <laughs> there's a what? Your- if there's the, the, the Cormier towel the trick, trick. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's possible, but uh, the alternative is someone gives California $3 million to set up a fucking proper program a la USADA to go in and test these guys, but I don't see that happening. 
Yep. And uh, programming note uh, before I get to the last topic for boxing this weekend, there's Dylan White versus Joseph Parker. It is a shockingly bad pay per view, uh, but the main event itself is just fine. Uh, should be an interesting fight. Dillian, it's Dillian. Yes, D- Dillian White. I forgot. Y'all corrected Dylan. me on that thing so many times, and then you go back to saying it the way I say it. For shame. It's Dylan White. It's Dylan, <laughs> Dylan, 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 because he spits hot fire. Um, yes, there's that fight in the middle of the day, but after the UFC is over, uh, Mikey Garcia unifying his uh, lightweight titles with his WBC lightweight title with IBF champion Robert Easter. And after that, Garcia is going to resume talks with both Dana White and Eddie Hearn over which promoter he's going to sign with. And I'm sure that uh, he's going to sign with Dana White because Dana White knows the boxing game inside and out (laughs) and totally will work with sanctioning bodies. He will work with Bob Arum. He will work with Oscar De La Hoya. (laughs) He will work with Steven Espinoza. I mean, he'll work with everybody. He he is that type of person. And he's definitely going to give Mikey Garcia, who's got three and a half million dollar purses already, career high paydays. Um, Yeah, I'm sure that's all going to happen. Garcia says he wants to fight Errol Spence, by the way. And that is. Ooh, that's a bad idea. Yeah, that that's a bad idea for a former featherweight to be fighting one of the largest welterweights on the the, the (laughs) sport. But, you know, Spence is awesome, too. Yep. Um, anyway, last topic, and this is about USADA, and it's basically a story that I knew was going to be on Double Leg as soon as I, I read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, American swimming star Ryan Lochte, he's not known for being one of the sharpest knives in the drawer, and he's just taken himself straight out of swimming competitions for the next 14 months. He recently posted and since deleted a pic on Instagram where he writes athletic recovery with some IV drip while tagging the Revival IV Lounge in uh, Florida. Of course, USADA caught wind of this, and after Lochte cooperated with USADA officials, Lochte accepted his 14-month ban. Uh, the statement reads that intravenous uh, infusions or injections in excess of 100 milliliters within a 12-hour period received in any other setting require an approved TUE. And guess what? Lochte didn't have a TUE, and he wasn't in a hospital, so that means he won't be at the U.S. championships next month. Uh, the ban is backdated to May 24th when he re- uh, received that infusion, so... I tell you what, we've been talking about USADA taking forever on certain MMA fighters' cases. Well, this is one way not to have a USADA case drag on that long, by making it obvious for the entire world to see. Well, they did say, here. there's a couple of things to point out. Ryan Lochte is an asshole, but he has worked, you know, at removing his assholish image. Um, He hasn't gotten in any trouble since then, except for now. And this... He got in trouble because he was a complete idiot, not because he was being an asshole. He posted it to his Instagram, but he had it linked to his Facebook and his Twitter. So everyone and their mama got to see this guy that they had grown to hate in 2016 during the Olympics because of his his assholery. And, you know, they probably couldn't wait to turn him in. But to his credit, they said that he cooperated fully and that the substance the, uh, the substances that were in his IV bag were not prohibited. Basically, he got himself a Myers cocktail, which is just a vitamin infusion. But the way he went about it was so I mean, why did he do that? I'll tell you why because he tagged the 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 IV clinic who was probably one of his sponsors because that's the only reason I could think of that someone would tag that clinic in on on their post. Then that's how athletes do it. You know, they give them credit and they get free stuff. They probably get a kickback, whatever. But this all came down to stupidity more than assholery, like is normally associated with this guy. Yeah, this is uh, he got 14 months because 
USADA, when they're following the WADA code, which they do with Olympic athletes, uh, the lesser infraction carries a, a base two-year penalty. And that's where, if I remember correctly, IVs sit. They count as a specified substance or method. So they carry a two-year penalty by default. And Lochte probably got um, a, a small discount for, I don't know, they could come up with any reason for that. They don't publish why. Maybe he admitted it, or maybe he said, I didn't realize, I thought it was under 100 milliliters, or maybe it's just that you said I wanted them available to compete in the next Olympics if he, if he needs to qualify. Who knows? It could be anything. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the problem. But uh, yeah, 14 months for this, in the absence of any other wrongdoing, if it was a UFC fair, it would be extremely harsh. Um, let's just say that. Um, taking an IV, unless there's any evidence that there's something untoward in the IV, Unless he was literally about to be tested, then it's kind of ridiculous to slam him that hard. Because the, the problem with IVs is IVs are a good way of diluting your blood to make it harder to test things. And, and when, you, when you're when you doing a drug test, it has to be done with blood. IVs can help there, and they can also be used for nefarious purposes, like EPO and things like that. So 14 months because of that, if, if he wasn't about to be tested, if there wasn't a, another situation to suggest that there was anything in the IV other than saline and, and B vitamins, it's kind of harsh, the 14 months, but that's, ah. that's the situation athletes are in. <laughs> yeah. BJ Penn got nine months, I think, when, when he had his IV uh, situation. I think so, yeah, six or nine, one or the other. While we're talking about USADA, there's uh, been some interesting stuff going on around this Ryan Lochte case, actually. Where Travis Tiger, the CEO of USADA, by and large does a good job. I'm going to put a disclaimer here. I've spoke to Travis multiple occasions. I like him. He's a smart guy. He definitely seems like he's trying to do the best that he can for, for the athletes. Um, I, I talk a lot about incompetent people and, and commissions and, and stuff, and sometimes that extends to anti doping. Travis isn't one of those guys. Travis knows what he's doing. That being said, he came out and he criticized um, WADA over a recent case involving Chris Frim where Chris Froome, the cyclist, tested positive for larger than allowed amounts of salbutamol, which is uh, an asthma medication. The WADA ended up not punishing Froome because Froome had a very good defense, and the defense basically said, look, you can't prove that this limit that you have um, can't be breached by someone using the asthma medication therapeutically, which you allow. Because the reason the, the threshold is there is because athletes are allowed to use asthma medication. They're just not allowed to overuse it. They're not allowed to overdose on it, basically. They're not allowed to take so much that it would give them a physical advantage. But what his lawyers argued was, look, he was using it normally, and it's not our fault that your test isn't sensitive enough to tell the difference between someone using the medication normally and, and you know, doing stressful exercise and how that interferes with the excretion of the substance in urine. It's, that's not our problem that your tests suck. And WADA basically had to go, yeah, okay, fair enough. Like, <laughs> this is okay. That's, that's the case. Um, Travis Tiger came out and said, look, you have to release more information about this. You have to explain how you came to that decision. You're undermining anti-doping if you don't explain your decisions, which is ironic because one of the things I've been railing about for, about USADA for a long time is that they don't do that. They refuse to release those decisions. The only time that ever comes out is when a case goes to arbitration. USADA never released detailed decision documents. They, they release less detailed stuff than WADA did in Froom. And Tiger was still out there criticizing him. And, and Tiger also apparently told the BBC that in over 75,000 tests, they've never had an athlete test um, with, with a, above the threshold amounts of some butamol, making it seem like the frim case is extremely unusual. Uh, in reality, there's been several cases uh, just in Europe of, 
of that exact thing happening. And there has, in fact, been at least one case, according to WADA, in 2010 that happened under USADA's jurisdiction where an athlete tested positive above the threshold for subutamol. And what USADA chose to do was, drum roll please, not pursue an anti-doping rule violation. <laughs> so USADA did the exact same thing WADA did here in the exact same way and also didn't release details and they're still criticizing Mada for doing it. <laughs> uh, but does that surprise you at all, Ian? No. No, it doesn't surprise me <laughs> in the slightest. Because this is something you said I've been doing for a while. There, there's a a sort of schism going on in anti-doping where there's like USADA on one side and a couple other national anti-doping federations, and there's uh, WADA on the other side, and USADA ostensibly trying to clean up the sport by getting the influence of sport out because on the WADA council half of the board seats are taken up by heads of various uh, sports uh, federations and you said I'm talking about you have to get the, the conflicts out of sports conflicts of interest it's terrible all the while signing a contract with the UFC that gives mm-hmm. the UFC the right to exempt athletes from testing I have a quick question for you 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 pointed out that uh, the defense in this case said that uh, it's not our fault that your test isn't sensitive enough to tell between, you know, regular use and, and extreme use. Is there a test out there that does that? I'm just curious. Well, it's not, it's not that. The problem, the, the test can detect how much is being excreted. The okay. problem is uh, they, they haven't properly researched what influences that excretion rate. So the question becomes then, okay, if someone takes a normal dose of salbutamol, but their body's under extreme stress, will more be excreted? If someone takes a normal dose of uh, salbutamol, but they're at this level of hydration or they're drinking this much or whatever, is that going to affect how much comes out? Mm-hmm. And they've not done those proper controlled excretion studies. And this isn't, this isn't just for salbutamol. There's very, very few substances that have got proper in-depth controlled excretion studies. It's one of the huge flaws with the water private list that I reel about constantly, but you said I, you know, don't do the research on it, in part because they don't have the funds to do the research on it. But the truth is, there's a lot of substances that we don't know how long it takes to get out of your body, especially when it comes to elite athletes under incredible physical stress, which and who may be dehydrated or overhydrated. We don't we don't know, but we're still punishing these athletes as if we do know. Like if if it's a some banned in competition, but not out of competition then we still don't know for sure. You can't say to an athlete, if you stop taking this drug by this date, it will definitely be out of your system by the time you're in competition. They can't do that with the majority of drugs, which is ridiculous because they'll still punish them as if they took it in competition, even if they're driving no benefit from it. And all that happened is, oh, whoops, we miscalculated how long it would actually, the metabolite would be in your urine (laughs) or bad. This is like that case with the Dagestani guy and the tennis player, right? Meldonium, exactly. Meldonium, yeah. That's what happened with Meldonium. Um, Islam Makhachev in the UFC and Daniel Omelanchuk both ended up with no fault, um, no violations after testing positive for it because WADA came out after banning it, six months after banning it. They went, actually, we kind of need to overturn all these ones from like the last six months because it turns out it's possible that they only tested positive even though they actually stopped before it was banned. Oops. Which you should probably have fucking worked out before banning it, but he. Huh. Yep. <laughs> the moral of the story is no matter how well intended these anti doping agencies are, they fuck up quite a lot too. And in USADA's case, uh, it's so unlikely them to be hypocritical. I mean, this is, this is, uh, this is a rarity <laughs> for them. And it I doesn't can't... matter which sports. Of course, cycling has got, you know, 
drug testing histories for 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 decades at this point. Uh, didn't Chris Froome uh, accidentally uh, get tagged as a fan by the police during one of the recent stages of Tour de France? I think that's what happened after he he basically had no chance of winning, and uh, there was a mistaken identity when he rode down the course. So uh, I didn't notice that. But that's fucking hilarious if it's true. Now um, on to another topic, and this is a. a, a Let's just say it has to be seen to be believed. <laughs> I know we're on radio, we're, we're audio only, but you guys have got Google, you have Twitter. You can access and take a look for yourself at the monstrosity that Reebok created uh, for Daniel Cormier, double champion, the, the only light simultaneous light heavyweight and heavyweight champion in UFC history. Um, so they, they created two, uh, it's actually one t-shirt to commemorate his historic win. Is it one t-shirt or two t-shirts? I think it's, I think it's, it's one with one in the front and one in the back. It is one. It's it, a t-shirt, t-shirt. It's a t-shirt, t-shirt, t-shirt. t-shirt yeah. <laughs> well, for the champ, well, champ. Exactly. <laughs> uh, to commemorate the, the, the win over uh, Miocic, of course. So for just $28, you can get an embarrassingly basic pick of Cormier with both belts, double champ, and big plain text, big plain font size with Daniel Cormier repeated six times behind Cormier in the background. And then the other one has got uh, Cormier noted as a father, brother, son, husband, coach, Teammate, Olympian, UFC athlete, double champion, uh, and in fact, I think they separated it so that it's one li- uh, one word for for each line. So it's double, and then the next line is champion, as if that <laughs> makes any ch- makes any sense whatsoever in the flow of everything else that's written on there. The design sucks every which way possible. Um, how is Reebok still allowed to get away with this? Are they that creatively bankrupt that something as awesome as Cormier winning two belts at light heavyweight and heavyweight? And that's what they put out. That's twenty-eight dollars. That's twenty-seven dollars ninety-nine cents. Too expensive. They have. Um, they're they they're phoning it in at this point, though, because isn't the deal close to being up? Uh, I believe it's up next year at the end of next year or something. They are phoning it in. It is. Oh my goodness. Just one more to add to the long list of shitty T-shirts. Um, I can't imagine this thing selling very much because it's ugly. It's so bad. It's awful. I mean, like, what you do is you just, like, have Cormier with, like, a fucking Mike Tyson grimace on his face so he's going to kill a bitch and, like, a, a Bill Cosby sweater with bad, a daddest man on the planet on the bottom. <laughs> like, those old Tyson t-shirts. Like, just a Fedor sweater, but, like, growling and, yeah, daddest man on the planet. <laughs> just, I mean, that would so shit either, but it would be fucking hilarious. Like, yeah, they... they, they the um the shirt is fucking terrible. It's awful. It's so bad. It's, I, it's, I think the people at Reebok just don't understand the concept of fashion as a statement, as opposed to the concept of fashion as sportswear, because they're two different things. When you're trying to sell athletes and not teams, what the shit looks like is important. If you're just selling a team, it doesn't matter. You just the team all wear this and they're on TV and you fucking put a name in the back and who gives a shit? Everyone will buy it. But when you're trying to sell individuals, the t-shirts have to be individual. And that's something Reebok have never got. And when they do try and do something individual, they fucking decide that Northern Ireland doesn't exist. Or they decide that what everyone really wants is just the same fucking two words printed 24 times on a t-shirt. Or they fucking decide that someone's name is Gibbler. They're just really bad at their jobs. Yeah, it's pathetic. The only other one that I can remember being of recent times being that bad is that weird Josh Barnett. I don't know if it was a Josh Barnett jacket or some sort of jacket that looks straight out of a 1950s like mobster movie. 
Oh, that was the one for the uh, the first New York card. The, fir- the first New York yeah, card, yeah. Yeah, it was the MSG card, and they had that awful leather John Travolta out of Greece. Co- oh, my goodness. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, and it had so studs awful. on it. It had. St- I remember that. Rhonda modeled it, and it was horrible. Yep. Uh, we probably shouldn't use the Bill Cosby sweater for uh, these days for, for Daddest Man on the Planet. I think we should substitute for, like, Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince of yeah. Bel-Air. Especially <laughs> since people think uh, Cormier looks like, since John Jones called Cormier like, like a fat Carlton Banks, then Uncle Phil, we'll, we'll just go with that as Daddest Man on the Planet. Um, it, yeah, <laughs> Reebok, I know you can do better, but you probably won't. Can I um, just say while we're talking real quick about Cormier, remember that um, that fighter, the the uh, MMA awards when Cormier did the the little song, cake and chicken, cake and chicken, all about that cake, oh about my... that cake and chicken. Oh my That's god, great. they had Kelvin Gastelum. They recycled that stupid worn out shtick and had Kelvin Gastelum do the same thing for. Yeah, it wasn't great. It was horrible. I mean, but he deserves better. Give him fresh material. Why are you going to recycle that? So yeah, or or at least can't you do a link up with Popeyes for for something? Because to me, Cormier's (laughs) double champ accomplishment was also a massive win for Popeyes lovers everywhere. (laughs) They just lack creativity. Anyway, um, we have some big fight announcements uh, to get to before we head into our sap. Uh, our, our show predictions. Uh, the first one is UFC Denver. The 25th anniversary show has got Frankie Edgar against the Korean Zombie. So uh, Edgar's coming off the win over Cup Swanson in, in their rematch, while Korean Zombie hasn't fought since uh, I think he tore his ACL last year, prepping for Ricardo Lamas. So uh, this should be a really entertaining scrap. Yes, I agree 100%. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. That's a good matchup. Yep, appropriate matchmaking. I would favor Edgar, but man, the Korean zombie, he looked fantastic against Dennis Bermudez, and he, he's just a bad man, but he's, he's capable of fighting in a composed way. So he used to be like the, the, the slugger that we saw him in the WEC before George Root put an end to that, and since he's come over to the UFC, we've just seen too little of him, which sucks so much. Uh, so that's the main event. The, what, it's not announced as the co-main event, but you would figure it would be one of the featured bouts on the main card. Donald Cerrone against Mike Perry. Uh, Cerrone's staying at 170, evidently, and he's hoping to bounce back from a loss to Leon Edwards. Perry beat Paul Felder at UFC 226. Um, I don't know about you guys. Uh, this seems bad for Cerrone's brain. It sure does. But on the bright side, Cerrone does have a little tiny bit more fight IQ than Perry does. So maybe we see a, a more competitive version. I ultimately think Cerrone's going to lose, but maybe we see a, a little bit of competitiveness in there. Because I firmly believe that Paul Felder would have won if he hadn't broken his arm in, you know, two minutes into the fight. I uh, I think Cerrone will struggle with this. I think it's a bad matchup because Perry will walk him down and Cerrone struggles with that. And Perry can take a hit. And Cerrone struggles with that. And Perry well throw body blows. And Cerrone really struggles with that. I think it's a bad matchup for Donald, to be honest. I think he's going to take some damage. Yeah. Five years ago, I would pick Cerrone to, to, to school Perry. Because Perry is just kind of limited. I don't know how Perry's doing since he's moved to Jackson Wink. Um, but he's been in so many wars that I feel like Perry's going to basically wear himself wow. out at some point. Two Jackson Wink fighters fighting each other. Yeah, but, you know, Perry just got there, so I, I guess it's not as big a deal as a result. Um, but, yes, this, this is a 
it's a fun fight, but I fear that Cerrone is going to get splattered, and that would just suck. I mean, can't they just give him a winnable fight, a much more winnable fight in his hometown? Why does the UFC always do this? They book the hometown guy in the most difficult matchup possible. Um, so that's UFC Denver. And then UFC 230, which is the week before, uh, it's all about the middleweights. Chris Weidman against Luke Rockhold 2. Uh, this is non-title, so it's going to be three rounds. It's not the main event, obviously. Uh, Weidman hasn't fought since the win over Kelvin Gastelum last year. And Rockhold knocked out brutally by Yoa Romero and is not moving up to 205, it seems, at least not yet. And, of course, he's coming off injury, oh, the, the nasty uh, leg problem that he had. So, um, This it, is the smartest compelling. match. This is the smartest yeah. middleweight match they can make right now is put mm-hmm. these two back in there together and uh, weed out the weaker one to see who who's actually going to be able to go back up and, and challenge again. Um I don't. I don't even know which way I would pick because Rockhold has vi- visibly deteriorated since his win over Weidman, and Weidman has struggled mightily as well. So, I don't know. I would not want to see either one of these guys going up against Whitaker at this point, though. No, I'm the same. I think. Uh, I think I'd probably favor Weidman in this one, to be honest, because yeah, Rockhold yeah. just. I, I think Rockhold done the whole the Rocky Three thing where he became a celebrity and forgot he had to try really hard. To, <laughs> that's a good win. <laughs> you know? I, I really do get the feeling that that's what happened to him. I think he's been too busy doing Gucci commercials and posing on his yacht and forgot to just fucking get in the, the gym and get his ass kicked by Daniel Cormier five days a week. It honestly looks like that's what's happened. I think <laughs> I'd favor Weidman in the, the rematch for, as a result. Because Weidman, although he's been struggling, he hasn't looked like he's just fallen off a cliff. He's yeah. he lost to Rockhold and he done okay in the first couple of rounds there. Then he had the the fight with Romero where he got knocked out with a ridiculous flying knee after coming off of uh he'd done well in the first couple of rounds and he was coming off of an injury there. And then if I remember it, he got another injury, fought Musasi and got taken out by knees there and there's no shame in that. Like Romero, Musasi, Rockhold, all top five guys. Fought Gastelum and Gastelum again. Arguably top five guy, definitely top five at welterweight, and I uh, got a comfortable win over over Gastelum. So I think Weidman is is the guy who's been performing better, and I think we're probably going to see him take the win over Rockhold because Rockhold seems to be really struggling to just get his feet back under him. So one of those things I talk about all the time: once guys have been champ, some of them find it so hard to just get motivated to get back up there and and push themselves as hard as they did the first time around, and and just to get back to where they were. It's so much harder to do that than to be keep going forward and forward and forward and forward and improving and improving. That's one thing. That's a motivation. But then when your motivation is I need to get back to where I was, that's not as much of a driving factor for most people. And I think Rockhold's struggling with that. And not to mention, he left AKA, which in my opinion was a dumb move because that's a complete gym. And he ended up over with um, Henry Hooft. And, you know, listen, we've watched tons of fighters with Henry Hooft. And sure, their striking gets better, but their overall game deteriorates because that's not a complete gym. Combat Club is not a complete gym. And I can never emphasize that enough. I love Henry Hooft for what he does for, for guys stand up, but... Everything else suffers as a result. It, it's a, still a tough fight to call because both of these guys have been injured so often. Mm-hmm. So you don't know if either one of them is still in the prime of their career. Um, with Weidman, see, the first fight, I think Weidman had trouble because Rockhold is probably the only guy in the division he cannot 
decisively out grapple. I mean, once Rockhold gassed Weidman out and had top control, Rockhold's top control is fantastic. But we haven't seen Rockhold in top control that often lately, other than the David Branch fight, because he's been too busy getting wiped on the feet. And that's uh, a, a major problem for him. So Weidman definitely still has power. So that's, uh, it's, it's an interesting fight. It's a good rematch. I wish it were five rounds instead of three rounds. I mean, it, the, the difference between this being a, this could easily headline a fight night and be five rounds. Instead, it's on a pay-per-view in three rounds. So we'll see how that goes. And hopefully the fight actually happens, given their histories. Uh, the other middleweight bout announced Jacare Souza against David Branch. And, of course, they both recently had spectacular knockouts over Derek Brunson and Tiago Santos, respectively. Um, I, I like this matchup. It could be a good grappling matchup. Mm-hmm. I like it, too, very much so. Uh, mm. <laughs> You've never mm. you've never been impressed impressed with David Branch. <laughs> no, I haven't. I really haven't. I think this I think this has the potential to be the worst fight on any card. Like, <laughs> I really do. Uh, honestly, like you put fights on cards, you like Edgar Zombie. That's gonna be fantastic. That's probably gonna be fight of the night. Branch Shakri, like you put that on a card, and you're like, you might as well just to give me Woodley Wonderboy again. That's probably gonna be fucking off. <laughs> Just kick me straight in the balls instead. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it's a tough, actually, I forgot. Jacare is not coming off a, a knockout over Brunson. He's coming off the loss to Gastelum, which I almost forgot happened. So it is kind of, it's matching Probably up because you fell asleep during it. <laughs> well, Jacare Gastelum was cool. David Branch knocking out Tiago Santos was like the shock of the century because nobody could have seen Branch being an A, that exciting of a fight, and B, actually knocking out a good striker. So I have to imagine he's that turned was an the accident. <laughs> yeah, it must have been. He was so, going uh, for a takedown over shot and just his hand <laughs> came around, fucking hit him in the face, knocked him out. Yep. So, uh, oh, and lest we forget, the UFC announced Yoel Romero versus Paulo Costa. But Romero that. never signed the bout agreement. The fight isn't actually on yet. So this is like the third or fourth time that the UFC has announced a fight on their own website or through social media. But that fight was actually not agreed to by, by both parties. So what are they even doing? Are, are they trying to pressure Romero into taking this fight? And also, Romero, please move up to 205 and make that division better because... Jeez, that, that division is depressing as hell. Um, and there's no need to waste a prospect like Costa by giving him the guy who is seemingly indestructible. Like, he just walks through Robert Whitaker head kicks like nothing. So I, I think Costa could get dominated by Romero if that fight happens. So USC 230 shaping up to be all about the middleweights, uh, except Robert Whitaker, who's out for a while. And uh, we'll see what other fights are made over the next several weeks, and we'll talk about them in due time. But... Now we're going to get to our predictions. Last week we picked everything identically, three fights. Uh, we, all, we went two and one. Um, Marcin Tybura, boring decision win over Stefan Struve, other than Struve rocking Tybura with the head kick, and also Struve receiving one of the nastiest chin cuts I've ever seen. Um, he stuck his tongue through it, and that just grossed me out. Uh, Corey Anderson beat Glover Teixeira, so Teixeira looked kind of washed in there, and Corey Anderson wins. And as I tweeted uh, as the fights are happening, when Cormier retires and then 205 has got to have a new champion, we're going to get fights like Corey Anderson, Jan Blachowicz, too, as actual undisputed title fights. And, and that just Ian, makes Ian's Ian will kick himself in the balls. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And lastly, Anthony Smith, old yellered Shogun in about 90 seconds. Um, that, that was just gross. It, it was just, the card itself was bad. And then watching one of your, your heroes get wiped out like that predictably, 
even beyond my wildest imaginations, I didn't think showing him would get annihilated that badly. And then Gustafson decided he was heading straight to the heavyweight division. Yeah, and of course Gustafson injured like he usually is. So Anthony Smith, I would watch him fight Gustafson. Might as well. He's beaten up two guys who are basically way past their prime. But let's see him against an actual guy who, who who's in the top three or top five and see if he's for real. I hope he is because I like Anthony Smith. I love and, how uh, you're acting like Gustafson isn't past his prime. Uh, it it all depends. It, it, I mean, he doesn't fight, so you can't see he was past his prime. Uh, until he actually fights, and his last win was a last fight was a knockout against Glover Teixeira. But yeah, this division sucks so badly, and I just whatever. Luckily, I don't think there are any major light heavyweight fights over the next couple of months to talk about. So standings unchanged. We get to UFC on Fox 30 in Calgary. This is UFC 149 Redemption. So you may remember that as the worst one of the worst UFC pay-per-views of all time. This Fox card is stacked. You got Alvarez Poirier 2, Aldo versus Stevens, some other good fights throughout the card. We're going to start at the bottom with a fight pass prelim. Uh, John McDessie against Ross Pearson. Good Lord. This one's hard because you know what? They're both a star- They're both deteriorating a lot. I, I think I'm going to go McDessie, though, because I no, I take it back. God damn it. I don't know which one. Pearson. Okay, I'm going to go Pearson. Fuck it. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and go McDessie. Um, Pearson is on a really bad skid there where he he started losing to high-level competition like Will Brooks and Masvidal, and then he lost to Stevie Ray, and then he lost to Dan Hooker, and then he just got a win over Hirota. McDessie hasn't fallen off that much. McDessie's last three, he beat Abel Trujillo, who's pretty decent still, and Mehdi Baghdad and lost to Lando Venata. So I think Mike Dessie's not falling off as much as as, uh, as Pearson has here. That being said, I like Pearson. I'm kind of cheering for Pearson, but I just think Mike Dessie's going to be him. Yeah, I think Mike Dessie's basically less worn down than, than Pearson is. Pearson was always foot slow in the first place, but now he's arm slow. Like he, yeah. he just doesn't have the speed to 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 compete. And Mike Dessie, even though he's he's not looked great, he's still got the 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 technical striking that I think Pearson, you know is going to have some problems with. So I think back to wins this by unanimous decision. So, Steph, you pick Pearson? I, you know what? I'm going to go back to Mac Desi. I started to go <laughs> Mac Desi for a reason, so I'm going to go Mac Desi. Fuck it. I, yeah. I really want Pearson to win, though. I'm, I'm not the the biggest fan of Mac Desi. I don't find anything wrong with him. It's just I'm a bigger fan of Pearson. So I'm pulling yeah. for Pearson, but I really think that Mac Desi's probably going to squirrel out a win. Yeah, and their and their respective primes, and their respective primes, I would take Pearson. Yep, I just yeah, think absolutely. Pearson's prime is gone faster than Mike Mm-hmm. Uh, next up on the Fox prelims, so keep that in mind. It's Fox, not FS1. K. Jan Johnson against Islam Makhachev. You know what? I'm gonna go with Islam Makhachev. I really like K. Jan Johnson, but I think Islam Makhachev is a bad matchup for him. So I'm gonna go Islam. It is, but the odds for this fight are ridiculous. Um, it's the widest fight in the card. Makhachev is a minus 700 favorite. That's weird. That's like GSP picked, over Sarah levels of fucking... I picked Cajun last time when he was like the super underdog, and I and I got it right against the two of you who picked against him. I should. That's because he was fighting Stevie Ray. I had to pick Stevie Ray. Stevie fucking Ray. Stevie, I should pick Stevie, Cajun again. Stevie fucking Ray. <laughs> 
<laughs> but I, no, I'm I'm sticking with Makachev. I think he's gonna do it. Uh, I think so. I really want Cajun to win. Cajun, one of the guys, is working his ass off at Project Spearhead and stuff. I really don't want to see the UFC have any excuse to cut him. But Makachev's a gold medalist in Sambo. He's a bad dude. Yeah. Yeah, the only person he's lost is Adriano Martins, who just sparked him out with a clean punch in his uh, second ever UFC fight. Since then, he beat Chris Wade, he beat Chris Lentz, and he just knocked out Gleason Tebow. And I don't know how many of you have tried to knock out an oak tree before, but it's pretty tough. Uh, and he managed it. So I think he's going to be too much for, for Johnson. That being said, I think Johnson's kind of been underrated. Yeah, I don't think he should be a goddamn plus 500 underdog. Um, he beat Stevie Ray, he beat Martins who beat Makhachev. Um, I don't think he's going to get knocked out here, but I think Makhachev has enough grappling now and then and, and, uh, that Sambo experience is going to just let him control Cajun and grind a decision victory, I think. I, I hope, I have my fingers crossed that I'm wrong and Cajun wins. Yeah, this seems like a, it's not minus 700 levels of bad, but this seems like a bad matchup for, for Cajun Johnson because uh, Makhachev, a beast on the ground, he can, he can get the takedowns, he... Doesn't relinquish top control. Um, Johnson has a chance on the feet because Makachev has been knocked out before. He got knocked out by Adriano Martins, and that's whom Johnson, as Ian pointed out, knocked out. So he knocked out Martins. So the MMA math suggests Johnson could win this by knocking out Makachev, and that's, I think, his only path to victory. Otherwise, Makachev is going to shut down Kajan's offense and, and get a decision win. And then the USC brass will be celebrating. They will be popping champagne. They will give Makachev a $5 million post-fight bonus for getting Kajan Johnson out of the USC because you know that they have been waiting and waiting and waiting for Kajan to lose so that they could cut him. Like they pretty much got rid of Leslie Smith uh, by, by having the, uh, the Aspen Lad fight canceled. But sign your project spearhead card, uh, fighters. Do that. Makachev... We're unanimously agreeing that he's going to be KJ Johnson. Now we go to the feature Fox prelim. Jordan Meehan against Alex Morono. Alex Morono. Um, Meehan hasn't looked all that great. I, I got to take Morono here. Yeah, Meehan's only win in the past three years is over Eric Silva. Uh, <laughs> who, honestly, I think if you put Eric Silva in there against his own shadow, he'd find a way to lose in the UFC. <laughs> so I'm not banking on that. That being said... Morono hasn't looked great recently either. He lost his split decision to Keita Nakamura, and he uh, he beat Josh Barkman, but again, Josh Barkman would have beat himself by injury if he was just left alone in the cage. So, yeah, I uh, both of these guys are on the sort of, at this point, they seem like they're on the cusp of UFC level. I think Morono, just by being the younger guy and having more potential to maybe have improved, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and pick him. I know it's only a year, but Mean's been around forever, and if he was going to have massive improvements, we'd probably have seen it by now. Morono, you know, he's only been at the top level for a couple of years. It's possible that he has, you know, one of those big growth spurts, and, and his skills improved dramatically. So I'll pick him just based on that. Plus, Mean's been in all those fucking wars. Jesus, that kid never has a has a fight where he just goes in there and fights smart. He always takes a fucking beating yeah. whether he wins or loses. And they, they put him in there against like the dudes who, who that's how they fight. I mean, he was in there against um, Cyborg Santos and then they put him in against Woodley and then Matt Brown and then Mike Pyle and then Tiago Alves and then Bilal <laughs> Muhammad and, and fucking Emil Mech. Like, if you were to line up fucking six dudes who would just rock em, sock em robots for you in this division, he got all fucking six of the dudes. Like, he's... <laughs> It's not great for him. 
Yeah. Um, Morono's, see, if you compare skill sets, Mian should win this, but Mian is kind of a head case in there. Like, as soon as there's a little bit of resistance or some pushback, he kind of folds up. That's what Emil Mech did to him. And Emil Mech fights like a wild man, as we saw in, in the Hamburg fight. He, he has no takedown defense whatsoever. So what does he do? He throws a flying knee two seconds into the fight and gets taken down. So that's <laughs> the dude who comfortably beat Jordan Meehan over rounds two and three. So I think Morono has what it takes to kind of scare off Meehan and, and, uh, and get the victory here. So I'm going with Morono. So, again, we're all picking Morono over Meehan. All the people we're picking have got uh, M as the starter, their last name. So will that uh, will that continue for Olivier Alban Mercier and Alex Hernandez? Yes, uh, I got to pick Olivier because that badass mustache and the pictures that Esther uh, Esther Lynn put up today, he looks just like Javier Pena from Narcos. So I'm picking him just on that because he's a fucking badass with the badass mustache. Boom. I don't even know how to pick this one. It's uh, honestly a tough one. Just for me. pick with um, me, buddy. Okay, I, I pick with Steffi. There. there we go. Boom. Yeah, I'm picking Alban Mercier. It almost feels like uh, I'm punishing Alex Fernandez for the quick knockout of Benil Dariush because we still don't know a whole lot about his overall game. Uh, and also, Dariush is really incredibly hittable. And, and Hernandez has power. So I guess in hindsight, we could have seen that coming. Mercier's Mercier, not, uh, not a chinny guy, though. He could take a yeah. hit. Yeah, so Alban Mercier, he, he can take a hit. Um, he has good he has good ground skills. He can submit you uh, with, with those with those chokes. He's durable. He can go into the later rounds. So I think Hernandez is going to give Alban Mercier a really difficult first round, put him in some trouble. But Alban Mercier is going to uh, rally in the last two rounds to get a win. So we're all on board with OAM over Alex Hernandez. And now we get to uh, the real top fights on this card, starting with Joanna Jacek against Tisha Torres. I'm, JJ versus TT. I'm picking JJ because uh, I, I honestly think the only person out there that's going to beat her is going to be Rose. So at least for the foreseeable future. And I, I just don't think that Torres has, has got what it takes to get past all that striking, man. So, yep, I'm taking JJ here. Torres is a significant underdog, but I said when this fight was made that I actually think Torres is the right style to make Joanna struggle these days, and I stand by that. I think it's the the worst matchup of anyone outside the champ for Joanna. Um, even though technically Torres is, is a bit further down the rankings, I honestly think just styles make fights, and I think if anyone else is going to beat Joanna, I think it's Tisha. So, although she's a two fifty underdog, I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna I'm gonna put my my neck on the line and say I think Tisha Torres gets inside and, and roughs Joanna up a bit and gets the win. Um, yeah, I mean, Phil McKenzie is uh, picking Torres to win by split decision because Torres does start quickly and Joanna doesn't really start all that fast. And Torres, you know, she's not a finisher by any means. She's got one finish to her name, but she is steadily getting better overall. And Joanna, I don't know whether or not she deals very well with fighters who don't come straight at her so that she can just snipe them from range. So, yeah, Torres has a chance. She, she's got good wrestling, but she is kind of undersized i think and joanna's got fat fantastic takedown defense and as far as overall damage i think joanna is capable of landing more on torres than the other way around but this is this might be a more competitive fight than people expect i am picking joanna by unanimous decision um, but it's not a comp it's not a confident pick torres is a live dog here 
Um, so we're all picked. Well, actually, Ian's picking Torres for the upset. Steffi and I are picking Ioana or Jacek. Now we go to the co-main event. It's Jose Aldo against Jeremy Stevens. Is Jose Aldo so washed that he's going to lose to Jeremy Stevens? Yes. I'm taking Stevens. I think Stevens um, is kind of the exception to Ian's nine-year rule because he's been at this for 13 years, and he looks pretty damn good. I saw uh, an open workout with him yesterday, and he is like lightning still. His fists are fucking fast. Um, I think he has much more in the tank left um, than uh, than Aldo, so I'm, I'm taking Stevens here. Is this... Uh... This isn't the main event, right? It's three rounds. Yep. Only three rounds. Yep. I'm picking Aldo. Okay. Um, Aldo's problem in his last two fights is he's not been able to keep his pace up um, for the, the full five. He's been getting out and fighting as if it's three round fights. And as soon as he starts getting in the third round, Holloway, who's been conserving himself, starts really stepping up and pulling on him. And Aldo just doesn't have what he needs to to, to keep that going, to step up his own pace and and deal with it and that's a big part of why he's lost so also just that Holloway's a terrible matchup for him in terms of styles Stevens uh, is a much better matchup for Aldo in terms of styles Aldo loves guys who throw those winging punches and those hooks and you know who, who push themselves a little bit too far forward and lean heavy on that front leg it's the style for Aldo um, I, I have to imagine that if he loses to Stevens and this is no disrespect to Stevens because Stevens has looked fucking incredible but if he loses to Stevens, we've definitely he's definitely lost a step in the last two years. Because the Josie Aldo, even the one that beat Frankie Edgar in twenty sixteen, would would beat even the best Jeremy Stevens. Um if he doesn't win this one, I think we can safely say that any hopes he's got of even remaining in the top five are gone. And I would love to see Jeremy Stevens get a title shot. I, I think Jeremy Stevens is second fight, he deserves one. Um he's also I've interacted with him personally, he's always been a fantastic dude. Um I know he's got you know, some, some demons in his personal life and stuff with anger and stuff. I've never seen that. He's always been brand new in any time I've come across him. So I, I, I kind of hope for his sake that he does get a shot. But I think Aldo's going to take it. I think Aldo's going to take his leg out from under him. Steven's going to be swinging and missing the whole time looking for the big shot. And Aldo's just going to pick his leg apart. The one thing that concerns me with Aldo is not really a chin problem because he took a billion shots from Holloway before just exhausting himself and getting TKO'd on the ground. And um, the, the concern is that Aldo says he plans to retire uh, after his contract is up. He's got three more fights left. So I don't know if he's really just kind of just going to run through the motions, play out the string and then call it a career, or if he's really going to commit and, and, and go out there to, to actually make some decent effort to win the fight. Because on paper, I think Aldo is going to get a shutout decision win over Stevens. Um, the, the thing with Stevens is he is still kind of the same. As much as he's improved, he's still kind of the same guy who lost to Hinato Moikondo last year. And he looked terrible in that fight. Anybody who can fight a disciplined fight and not engage in Stevens' wild brawling, meaning not do Ho Choi and not Josh Emmett, has been able to beat him. Like, if Stevens were to rematch Holloway, Holloway would beat him again comfortably. Um, but, boy, if Aldo's head isn't in it, then Stevens has a chance. And if Stevens can land that one big shot, that can change the fight around. But I think Aldo is capable of, of just staying on the outside, landing his jab, landing the, the, the more pivotal strikes round by round, and I wish he would go back to his damn takedowns again because he used to be a, a, a real threat from, from top position. He instantly mounted Kenny Florian. Um, but, you know, Aldo, that Aldo is gone. So I think this Aldo still has enough to beat Stevens. But again, like the Ioana fight, I'm not all the way comfortable. So I'm going with Aldo by unanimous decision. But wouldn't be surprised if Stevens did 
and he'll kind of repeat the Hen and Burrell performance and did the same to uh, Aldo. So Steffi's going with Stevens. Ian and I are going with Aldo. Now we go to the main event. We have been waiting so long for this. The Violence Weight Championship is on the line. Eddie Alvarez and Dustin Poirier, too. I'm picking Poirier. I think he was doing better in the first fight than than Alvarez was before it, you know, was unfortunately called. So I'm picking Poirier here. I just think he's a, a, a better fighter at this point. I don't know. I'm struggling with this one, mightily. I think, oh, man, this is so tough for me to pick. Um, these guys are almost evens in the odds. Uh, Alvarez is a slight underdog. Uh, I, it's going to depend on how Eddie Eddie's recovered because that corner fight kind of it took a lot out of Eddie, and then we even saw in the um the, the follow up fight against Poirier, it, it was it could have gone either way, and then in Gaethje, it was just Eddie. He won, but he took so much punishment in the process. He didn't look as I don't know. He didn't look in control of the fight as much as I was hoping he would, considering he was fighting someone who. It's easy enough to bait into doing what you want them to. It Dustin looked great against um, Gaethje. Yeah, Dustin looked fantastic. I'm uh, I'm going to split a difference um, because it's honestly a toss up in my head. So I'm going to split a difference with my Wonder Twin, and I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to pick Eddie. Hey, and it should be noted, last night, uh, Eddie posted a picture. He's uh, Man, he's so ready to be on weight. He's 163 pounds last night. Damn. Yeah, it's so and and you know Poirier's huge, so his weight cut yeah. isn't going to be as smooth as Eddie's. Well, is this this is a lightweight, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah Poirier is one of the biggest guys at lightweight. Yep. Although I, I don't know if he's working with Lockhart and Co. If he has it, will go pretty smooth. Um, I think he might have worked with him in the past. I don't know if he has for this fight, but if he has, uh, I don't really have any concerns about the cut. I. Believe it or not, as much as I like Eddie Alvarez, I look back, I've never picked Eddie Alvarez to win any of his UFC fights on Bloody <laughs> And now I hope people don't think, oh, I'm an Alvarez hater or I'm trying to do a reverse jinx. Um, he stole but, your tricycle. <laughs> yes. Jeez, um, I'm so torn. I, I, I think Poirier should win this, but you know, Alvarez was, was turning it up when, before the illegal knee happened. Um, and Alvarez is just so difficult to, to, to put away, which made what Connor did all that more impressive because I've been waiting and waiting and waiting, thinking, okay, all the wars he's had dating back to Bellator and even before that in Bodog fights, it's going to catch up to him and he's going to go in there and look old and not look like the same Eddie Alvarez. And then he just keeps defying the odds, you know, with, you know other than the McGregor fight, but McGregor's just a fantastic talent. I thought he actually looked very good against Justin Gaethje. I mean, his jab was landing. It was on point. He went to the body a lot, and he just took advantage of all of Gaethje's defensive uh, deficiencies, which is all of them. But, um, (laughs) jeez, I'm going with Eddie Alvarez. I I must break the streak. I I have to break the streak at some point. So I think Poirier is going to have a good start, and I think Alvarez is going to turn it up on him and and hurt him at some point and uh, turn the tables and get a TKO win. It's not like Poirier is, is... an iron chin dude. He did get KO'd cold by Michael Johnson a couple of years ago, and he'd been knocked out by McGregor as well. So I think Alvarez withstands the punishment, even though he struggles against Southpaws, and gets it done. And uh, yeah, that's about it. I'm just hoping for a great fight. So Ian and I are picking Alvarez. Steffi is picking Poirier. Uh, so the only 
pick differentials here are the top three fights. Ian going with Torres over Ioana, Steffi going with Stevens over Aldo, as well as uh, Poirier over Alvarez. So um, here's to a great event in Calgary. Uh, also be sure to uh, follow our bloody elbow colleague Nick Baldwin, who is in Calgary, uh, doing some uh, media stuff uh, throughout the week. And he's, he's been working his ass off, and he's done a fantastic job. So uh, be sure to check him out. And you can also check us out on Twitter at at Mookie Alexander for me, Crooklyn MMA for Steffi, Ian Kidd for Ian, and the show itself at Three Amigos Pod. Uh, you, as always, you can view all of our work, including the rest of our predictions, over at BloodyElbow.com, and you can also pester Ian on the Reddit MMA page. Um, before their stock market value drops any further, go to Facebook, more specifically, facebook.com slash Three Amigos Pod, and press the like button. We really appreciate it. And uh, if you want to listen to past episodes, then go to the MMA Nation SoundCloud and iTunes pages. Thanks again for listening to us. Enjoy the fights, and we will be back with you next week for more Three Amigos fun.